2: That's chumbacasino.com.
0: No purchase necessary. DTW, Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
2: Hello, everyone. It's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the
0: years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything
2: is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. Hi, this is Jen.
0: And Jenny from Ancient History Fangirl.
2: And this is some of our all-time favorite Celtic mythology episodes all in one place because we just couldn't choose one episode.
0: We're on a hiatus this summer taking a long deserved break. We wanted to share with you some of our favorite historical and in this case mythological rabbit holes while we take a few weeks to recharge, record new episodes, figure out what the fuck we're doing with our lives, and travel.
2: These three episodes are some of what I consider to be our funnest. Is that a word?
0: It is now Shakespeare.
2: (laughs) I don't know. I'm making it a word. Funnest episodes. Well, okay. I'm going to admit the Morgan is kind of serious, but the Hound of Ulster and the Pictish Beast are two of the weirdest, wildest, and in some places, silliest episodes we've ever recorded. Not counting You Don't Know Yule, because that isn't a Place all by itself.
0: I would say you don't know Yule is his own white rabbit hole, if you know what I mean.
2: That's in a white rabbit all by itself.
0: This past year has been a challenge. Times are getting more and more difficult. It's possible we're living in the darkest timeline. And because of that, we wanted to add some levity to your summer. So join us as we revisit our dear friend, Kukulin. Hi, Kukulin. Hello. As we find out the best way to stop a rampaging berserker child, which is with boobs. Just whip him out, ladies whip him out that will solve your problem
2: in ancient ireland maybe not in the modern world keep him inside
0: jen wants you to cloister those boobs i don't think you should be t-
2: showing children your boobs maybe if they're rampaging i don't know
0: friney would approve this is a friney approved message damn titties. <laughs> so discover the love story of the irish achilles and patroclus which makes us cry and swoon and sob and oh my god i'm a mess now i need to blow my nose i die
2: and make time for the morrigan The red Maka, the washerwoman at the ford, the battlefield goddess of sex and death, because she's got all the good stories to tell.
0: And get ready to laugh and speculate along with us as we try to figure out what the heck the Pictish Beast actually was. Was it a war elephant? Was it a water horse? Was it the Loch Ness Monster?
2: I think you know which creature I support, Loch Ness Monster.
0: We actually go into depth and our reasonings for what we think it is, and it's probably just a tad bit, just put your tinfoil hat on, you will be well-dressed for this episode.
2: So, we will see you on September 22nd with a brand new season.
0: Have a nice summer.
3: In that sweet country, I'll rest my weapon.
0: The first warp spasm seized Kukulin and made him into a monstrous thing, hideous and shapeless, unheard of. His shanks and his joints, every knuckle and angle and organ from head to foot shook like a tree in the flood or a reed in the stream. His body made a furious twist inside his skin so that his feet and shins and knees switched to the rear and his heels and calves switched to the front. The bald sinews of his calves switched to the front of his shins. Each big knot the size of a warrior's bunched fist. His face and features became a red bowl. He sucked one eye so deep into his head that a wild crane couldn't probe it onto his cheek out of the depths of his skull. The other eye fell out along his cheek, his mouth weirdly distorted, his cheek peeled back from his jaws until the gullet appeared, his lungs and liver flapping in his mouth and throat, his lower jaw struck the upper, a lion-killing blow. His heart boomed loud in his breast like the baying of a watchdog. Malignant mists and spurts of fire flickered red in the vaporous cloud that rose boiling above his head, so fierce was his fury. The hair of his head twisted like the tangle of a red thorn bush stuck in a gap. The hero halo rose out of his brow, long and broad as a warrior's whetstone, long as a snout, and he went mad, rattling his shields, urging on his charioteer and harassing the hosts. Then tall and thick, steady and strong, high as the mast of a noble ship, rose up from the dead center of his skull, a straight spout of black blood, darkly and magically smoking." I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen
2: McBenemy, and this is Ancient History Fangirl.
0: So that quote is from the Thomas Kinsella translation of the Tain, or the cattle raid of Cooley from the Ulster Cycle. It's one of a series of about 80 folktales that are iconic to Ireland. So this episode, I don't know how to explain this episode, Jen. It's It's a mythology episode! It is! It's a mythology episode! We told the story of the first half of Caesar's life and career, and then hit the part where Caesar goes to Gaul, and then got kind of... wrapped around the axle over how most of what we know about the Gallic Wars comes from Caesar's commentaries and the problems we had with telling the story from the point of view of the victor. So
2: we decided to let the Gauls speak for themselves through indirect evidence, archaeology, other ancient writers who visited them as chroniclers and not conquerors, and myths and law codes that come down to us today from other Celtic societies. All of these sources are imperfect. The ancient chroniclers are outsiders, usually Greek and Roman, who bring their own prejudices to their writing. The archaeology tells us only an incomplete picture that's open to misinterpretation and the myths we have are generally not from Gaul. They're from other places like Ireland or Scotland or Wales or England and they were written down centuries after the Gallic Wars by Christian scribes. You're looking at stories that can't be reliably dated to a specific time or place of pre-Romanized Gaul. They're a millennia after the fact, geographically distant, and sometimes viewed through a Christian lens.
0: Even so, we look at this story story, the cattle raid in the Ulster cycle, and we see a tantalizing glimmer of ancient Gaul. And that's why we wanted to tell this particular story to you. As we've said before, the story we're about to tell you is Irish mythology. It was written down for the first time, I think around the 1100s AD by Irish Christian scribes in the old Irish language. But it's most likely from a much older pre-Christian oral tradition that existed in Ireland for a long time before that, maybe for centuries. The Ulster cycle is important to Irish and Celtic identity today. And like we said, it's very Irish. The place names are Irish. The language is Irish. Some characters are based on real people from ancient Irish history. We do not negate its Irishness, and we don't want to negate its Irishness. That is certainly not our intention. A story with a history as long as this one has will naturally gain meaning and grow in meaning to the people who tell it at all points in history, and those meanings are completely valid.
2: So why are we telling you an Irish story in an episode about the Gauls in the middle of the Julius Caesar arc? Why, Jenny? Says the red-headed, green-eyed girl named McMenemy whose Irish clan also is named Cassane.
0: (laughs) We do have an Irish woman in our midst right now. Well, not really.
2: You've got an American who has roots from Ireland, but I mean, the Irish would not consider me Irish.
0: Yeah, so we've got someone with Irish ancestry in our midst. We go into that at length in the previous episode, but the thumbnail version is that woven throughout this story are signifiers, little clues and callbacks that remind us of things found in the archaeology of the Gauls and things ancient writers, Told us about them more than a thousand years before this story was written down. You can spot them if you know what to look for, which you will if you listen to the previous episode, and I will be pointing them out incessantly because that's what I will do. You're going to be like Agrippina
2: the Elder, never shutting up about her husband getting murdered.
0: It's the gulls! There they are! <laughs> 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 if you have super strong feelings about this being an Irish story only, this may be not the episode for you. But it isn't a perfect lineup, but I specifically picked the Cattle Raid of Cooley because it has so many of these little clues. And we're operating under a theory in this episode that this story is older than you'd think. And if you know what to look for, it can draw back the curtain and give us an indirect glimpse of ancient Gauls. So what we're trying to do is triangulate the Gauls. We've got the archaeology, we've got ancient writers, they've all got something wrong with them. And now we're going to tell you this myth, which is not from Gaul, but it's the closest thing we have. That's the working theory. And just a heads up, we are going to rag on this a lot because that is what we do, but we rag because we love. We adore this story and we cannot stop talking about it. Absolutely. So here we go. It begins with a boy named Satanta. Like all great heroes, Satanta's birth was shrouded in myth and mystery. His mother was mortal. Her name was Dioctine. And just so you know, this is the story where we earnestly try to pronounce things in Old Irish, and I don't know how this is going to go. We're going to mispronounce things a lot. Yeah, we're doing our best. Um, We apologize if we get things wrong.
2: I frequently can't pronounce things in English. I mean, frequently, I can't pronounce my own it's our name.
0: There's a lot of M's in there. <laughs> we are two people who cannot pronounce words and we have a podcast. We're the wrong people to be tackling this, but we're doing it anyway. So anyway, his mother was mortal. Her name was Deictine. Hopefully I pronounced that within the neighborhood of right. And she was both the sister of the King of Ulster and his charioteer, which is pretty badass. That's so badass, Jenny. I
2: just want to read a whole like novel about her life as sister of the King and charioteer.
0: Someone should write that for me. We need to kickstarter. <laughs> Our fan fiction arm of the ancient history fangirl digital empire. We do. I'm still desperate for people
2: to tell us if they want us to write Supernatural meets what did we say? Agrippina the Younger and Julia Lavilla Villa Ghostbusters.
0: It was Supernatural meets the Children of Germanicus Ghostbusters. Amazing. One day. Yeah. So I'm trying to get through this story. I was about to <laughs> tell you about, <laughs> about Satanta's father, who some say was Lou, the god Luke. 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 Luch. I'm going to really screw up those back of the throat consonants. It's coming. Some say his father was Luch, the god of the sky. Luch was an Irish Celtic god associated with a lot of different things. Skill at crafts and the arts, truth and the law, and there's a harvest festival named after him. But he's also called Luch of the Long Arm, so named for his ability with the spear and sword. He was said to own an unstoppable blazing spear and a slingstone and a sword whose name translates to the answerer, which I think is a great sword name. And also supposedly he invented chess. So those are some things about Santanta's dad.
2: Amazing. I really love that sword name.
0: I'm going to name something to answer. Or it's going to be like my next car or something.
2: Anyway, Santanta was not raised by his real dad. He was fostered in a household of a number of people, one of them being Fergus, a guy who used to be king of Ulster, and we'll get to that in a second. Santanta's uncle, Conchobar, the current king of Ulster, fostered three times 50 boys or 150 boys who were the sons of lesser kings. These boys all played together on the plains of Vonka, Conquivore's capital, with their hurling sticks and balls. And I have to say, when we were talking about this myth, it feels like concavore is kind of like Achilles' father, Peleus. He's got all of these children of lesser sons that he's fostering to build an army. Is Tomta going to be the Achilles of this story, Jenny?
0: Yeah, I've seen him referred to as the Irish Achilles, and there are tons of parallels. Amazing. So, right, sidebar, I think this is hurling, which is one of Ireland's national sports. If you're Irish, I'm sure you know about about this or if you are from Europe and watch the sport, you probably know about this. I am American. We do not know about the sport. It's played with a ball and a stick and there's like a net on one end of the stick. So the sticks kind of look like lacrosse sticks, but it's different shaped net. And if you watch people play it, this is a really fast paced game and it looks kind of like a cross between lacrosse and hockey and UK football and maybe rugby. But I'm not that knowledgeable about sports, so I don't know if I'm really describing it right. But I will say that it's really fast paced and it's really fun to watch and I'll put a link in the show notes of some people playing this game. It's really cool.
2: Anyway, so this boy, Santanta, hears about Concavor's 150 boys in the boy troop, and these, again, are foster sons of neighbors and allies, and he wanted to join them. He was about maybe six years old. His mother told him not to go, but he went anyway, taking his hurling stick and ball and his toy shield and javelin, as you do when you're six and you're running away from home. He ran all the way to Ivan Vaca, tossing his toy javelin ahead of him and running to catch it before it hit the ground. Again, as you do when you're a kid, we've all played that game. Maybe not with a javelin.
0: It would be really tough to catch it before it hits the ground, like throwing something far ahead of you and then catching it before it hits the ground. It's one of the early signs of his divine ancestry that he can just casually do that at the age of six.
2: Yeah. I mean, I was thinking more when you like practice with the softball and you like throw it up really high and then you run to catch it. Anyway, when Sentanta came upon the boy troop, playing outside King Konkogor's castle, he immediately ran to join them, without first stopping to ask for their protection. This was custom for anyone new joining the boy troop, but Sentanta didn't know that. Instead of observing the niceties, he plowed into the group like a little chaos demon because he's six, and six-year-olds frequently are chaos demons, they're upset it. <laughs> the other boys were understandably offended. They shouted at him and flung their toy javelins at him, and he deflected them all with his toy shield. No. Next, they brought out their hurling sticks and hurled their balls at him, and they all bounced harmlessly off his chest. I
0: mean, how big is his chest? He's six. I guess they're just pelting him with these balls, and it just doesn't hurt. I guess, but he's six. He's tiny. Does anyone know in the hurling sport exactly how hard these balls are? Like, are we talking like an inflatable bladder kind of a ball or like a softball or like a, I don't know, a ball that is hard? A
2: tennis ball or a cricket ball. What do you call it? The one with pool? Like a pool.
0: (laughs) This could be really, really painful or it could be not that big of a deal depending on what kind of ball this is. If you know about hurling, let us know if it would hurt to be hit with 150 hurling balls at one time.
2: I'm pretty sure it would. I knew a girl at work who played hurling, and I think she had bruises sometimes from getting hit.
0: Oh, well, then it's probably going to suck. Except Satanta has, he's the son of Lou, the sky god, so I guess he's fine. He's fine. Then
2: the boys threw their hurling sticks at him, and Satanta dodged every one three times 50. And then, quote,
0: The warp spasm overtook him. This is the Thomas Kinsella version, and I love this. He calls it a warp spasm. Wait, wait, wait. Warp
3: spasm. (laughs)
0: Jen just went into a warp spasm. I can see it from here. <laughs> it seemed, I'm describing the way I'm looking at Jen right now and I'm describing how she looks. It seemed each hair was hammered into her head <laughs> so sharply that they shot upright. You could swear a fire's speck tipped each hair. She squeezed one eye narrower than the eye of a needle. How are you doing that with your eyeball, Jen? She opened the other wider than the mouth of a goblet. She bared her jaws to the ear and peeled back her lips to the eye teeth till her gullet showed. The he- Hero Halo rose up from the crown of her head. Jen, whoa. Check out your Hero Halo. I mean,
2: I feel like I get off on the wrong side. I'm an embusa. I warp spasm. I've got a leg of ass and a leg of brass.
0: And she also frenzies in battle. Oh, all in a day's work, kids. Like a war elephant. There's a lot of crossover. (laughs) That was Satanta's warp spasm. It was not actually Jen's warp spasm, although, yes, it was. So Kinsella calls this a warp spasm because that's what we're saying a zillion times now.
2: If you're playing a drinking game, just, you know, crack that bottle open.
0: If you're playing a drinking game, you can totally drink whenever we say warp spasm, whenever I compare anything to the ancient Gauls, whenever Jen points out a parallel to Achilles.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Wait, wait, wait. I haven't said anything about the Aeneid yet this time.
0: (laughs) Basically the entire podcast whenever Jen brings up the Aeneid drink. Anyway, so I'm trying to tell a story. The Warp Spasm was actually Satanta's Berserker mode. This is an altered mental state that people in the ancient world sometimes went into in battle- the Vikings were famous for this, and there's some documentation that the ancient Goths before them used to do it and actually took drugs to simulate it. Aconite was believed among the ancient Goths to turn you into a werewolf, and we talk about that a little bit more in the of the Poisoner episode. So that's the warp spasm. So this boy, Satanta, has a berserker mode, and he's six years old. The boys fled at the sight of it, and Satanta pursued them, chasing them all around the castle, and eventually he figured out that the reason for the boys' lack of welcome was that he'd breached protocol, and he asked for their protection as he should have done in the first place and all was forgiven until five minutes later when he was chasing after them again, demanding that they ask him for his protection because he was a little chaos demon. He was also, according to the mythology, five years old, not six. Even though I said he was maybe six earlier. He's five. I said he was six earlier too. It's my fault. I blame myself. Five or six. He's going to be a lot of ages magically (laughs) this entire podcast. A wizard did it, Jen. Vitellius fixed it.
2: (laughs) So this is the story of how Santanta got his name. King Conquivore was the son of the druid Cathbad. One day Nessa, a princess of Ulster, was sitting outside Ivan Vaca when Cathbad walked by. She asked him what the current hour was lucky for. And he said, and I gotta quote this, guys, for begetting a king on a queen. <laughs> He swore up and down that this was true.
0: Oh, man, Cathbad.
2: I don't know. Oh, Cathbad, you are very, very bad. And Cathbad said that a boy conceived in this hour would be famous throughout Ireland. Nessa, since she saw no other men nearby, had sex with Cathbad right then and there and got pregnant. No, this is like the worst pickup line ever.
0: Cathbad is like, he's like the OG pickup artist. I'm
2: deeply disappointed that this worked, but... I side-eye this entire story. The baby gestated for three years and three months, which I can't, being
0: pregnant for three years and three months, oh
2: God. When she finally gave birth, she named the boy Concavor and gave him to be raised by Cathbeth.
0: Totally sick of this child at this point.
2: Yeah, and also hopefully not to learn the same crappy pickup line. When Concavor was seven years old, the king of Ulster at the time, Fergus asked Nessa to be his wife. And she said she would. Only if he would allow her son to be king for a year. So his own kids could claim a royal lineage. I guess the assumption is that her kids with Fergus would inherit the throne. But her other child that she had with Calbad, you know, it would be nice if he could also be king in a way. Just for a minute and then not. Totally. Thing is, she promised Fergus that he'd still be king in name. I think she had other ideas, though.
0: I see nothing wrong with this plan plan.
2: <laughs> <laughs> i feel like agrippina the younger totally like would think of this plan as well
0: agrippina the younger would be like this is so transparent i can't believe you're falling for this fergus
2: fergus agreed to this and made Concavar king in name only but nessa bribed fergus's warriors and when fergus tried to take back his kingship he found himself thwarted his warriors decided quote what fergus sold let it stay sold what Concavar bought let it stay bought so Concavar got to stay king but they stayed on goodish terms because Fergus wound up fostering his nephew, Cucullin. He did get exiled to Canot, though, for a different reason. Are we ever going to explain it or did a wizard
1: do it?
0: I mean, there's a whole story about why, but I'm not going to go into it. So for the purposes of what we're doing right now, the wizard did it. The Ulster Cycle is like a bunch of stories. It's like 80 stories and I did not tell all 80 stories here.
2: So he totally gets exiled because a wizard did it or Vitellius fixed it. Conchobar was such a merry suit. Everyone loved him. Everyone worshipped him. Every man in the kingdom happily let him sleep with their wives on their wedding nights which uh quote so as to have him first in the family he had a reputation for great wisdom and skill as a warrior but the story says quote he never gave a judgment until it was right for fear that it might be wrong and the crops worsen there was no harder warrior in the world but because he was to produce a son they never let him near danger also, whenever he crashed at a friend's house, he got to sleep with the friend's wife. And at the moment, he's seven years old?
0: Yeah, the only thing I can think of is that the Ulster Cycle basically calculates people's age in dog years. He's the uncle to Caculin, but at the moment, he's seven. He's seven. Cacullen is five at the moment. Okay, so they're very close in age. I think this is actually in the past, and then he grows up, and then Caculin comes along, but I might be screwing that up. Do you know what? A wizard did it. A wizard did it. A wizard is messing with the timeline. I mean, who else could? Vitellius probably could. Uh, yeah. He'd fix that right up. So, Concavor had three houses. The Red Branch, where he and his warriors held court. The Twinkling Horde, where he kept all his stuff. And the Ruddy Branch. Concavor kept all his stuff in the twinkling horde, which I just said. The javelins, the shields, and the swords. The halls glimmered with gold and silver sword hilts and elaborate scabbards and decorated javelins and shields and goblets and plates and drinking horns. This guy is totally the Dwarf chieftain from the last episode, Jen. This guy is totally
2: my magpie dream. I just want to go live in the twinkling horde. Jen wants to go roll around in the twinkling horde. <laughs> I do. For people who are of our age, if you've ever seen DuckTales, I want to Scrooge McDuck in that fortune. Don't you? And if you you don't know what Scrooge McDuck did. We'll put it in the show notes. But he dived and swam through his gold. So
0: that's what you do when you go to the Twinkling Horde. It's like a ball pit with gold instead of balls. Oh
2: my God! Yes.
0: No, I mean what this reminds me of is the Hallstatt culture, the ancient Celts who they were more about getting rich than about killing each other. This was the culture before the Latin culture, so it was like the older roots of the ancient Celtic culture that stretched through the UK and through Europe and all over the place. I'm not going to ramble, but we talked about it in the previous episode.
2: So do you think that Concovar is part of that older culture? And when we start getting into the stuff about Kukulun, that's more moving into that more modern Gullic culture?
0: Yeah, that's kind of what I'm implying, is that he feels like a relic from the Hallstatt culture. He does. Yeah, and Kukulin is totally La Ten, and so is the rest of the warrior culture around him.
2: Which is fascinating. It's interesting how that whole cycle has grown and mythologized around it and crystallized to show sort of an older culture and new culture together and what happens kind of like wait for it when you go from the Iliad to the Odyssey. Drink. (laughs) So
0: (laughs) the Ruddy Branch I did not tell you what's in the Ruddy Branch. That was where they kept the severed heads. As you do. (laughs) As you do because if you are from an ancient Celtic warrior culture, you're gonna take some heads. It's what you do. One day, Concavor was standing on the ramparts of his castle and noticed his nephew, Satanta, playing in the field with his boy troop. He was so impressed that he invited the boy to come with him to dinner that night at the home of his friend, Colin the Smith. Satanta turned him down. He was right in the middle of a game, but he promised to meet Concavor there after the game was over. Now, Cullen the Smith had a massive watchdog who was feared throughout the land, and this dog, it was a really mean, not very nice dog who barked a lot, but it was also his pride and joy. And when concavor arrived at Cullen's house, Cullen asked him if he was expecting anyone else to come, and concavor completely forgetting his conversation with Satanta, said, nope. No one else coming over here, just me. And Cullen shut the gates to his compound, released his guard dog, and then they all got down to feasting. So eventually, Santanta
2: finished his game and went to Cullen's house. He found the gate barred, and Cullen's hound was growling at him in a very ominous manner and clearly making doggy threats. Did not bring any doggy treats. No, he did not, which is where he went wrong to begin with. Santanta had no weapons, no snossages. All he had was his hurling ball and a stick. The dog leaped for his jugular because he's only doing his job. This kid is not supposed to be there. And Santanta didn't think. He just reacted, driving his hurling ball straight down the animal's throat. And I'm really sorry. I know there's a lot of animal lovers out there and that is upsetting and I should have given you a warning before that.
0: Retroactive warning for animal cruelty. Sorry, Captain Tom. The
2: dog died howling and it was an awful death and we're not going to get into that. Everyone in the household rushed outside to see what the matter was, expecting to find the dog had ripped out someone's throat
0: because let's not forget this was a very deadly trained killer guard dog it was not a nice cuddly dog
2: no and he was doing his job it's his job to protect the property Santanta is the person who's not in the right here instead they found this six-year-old boy standing unharmed over the corpse of cullen's massive dog which you know it's good a six-year-old isn't dead as well like i don't don't want to come down that like six-year-old should get mauled by dogs
0: we don't approve of that either. We don't approve of any of this, okay? All of this is an awful misunderstanding that
2: Concavor really should have sorted out.
0: Let's all blame Concavor because it's all his fault. It's all his fault and everyone loved him anyway, so... <laughs> Nobody ever thinks it's his fault. Everyone just blames the wrong person, and he just gets away with all this crap for some reason. So
2: Cullen was grief-stricken. Santanta swore right then and there that he would rear a new puppy from the same legendary litter to be the dog's replacement. And in the meantime, he would serve as Cullen's guard dog and guard his home from all intruders. And that's how Santanta got his new name, Cucullen, or Hound of Cullen. (laughs)
3: Have you ever
2: wondered what really happened to Amelia Earhart or the lost colony of Roanoke? Do you ever find yourself scouring the internet for vicious Victorians and their murders by gaslight? Or perhaps you're just sick and tired of women being constantly misrepresented or plain lied about throughout history?
0: If so, Join me, Katie Charlewood, history harlot, and reader of books on Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Part of the Area of Media Network. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify,
2: or wherever you listen to podcasts. Adios, au revoir, au revoir, zen, my friends. Bye bye.
0: I'll be seeing ya. One day, the boy, formerly known as Satanta, now known as Kukulin, overheard a boy ask the druid Cathbad what this day was lucky for. <laughs> oh boy, it's getting it on, isn't it? It's getting lucky, Jen. <laughs> <laughs> this day is lucky for getting lucky. And this is not a thing you should have to tell six-year-old boys, but that is how Cathbad ruled. So what Cathbad actually said, quote from Thomas Kinsella, and basically every time we quote something, unless I tell you differently, it's from the Thomas Kinsella version of the Tane. He said, quote, if a warrior took up arms for the first time that day, his name would endure in Ireland as a word signifying mighty acts, and stories about him would last forever. When Cucullin overheard this, he immediately went to King Conchobar and told him he was ready to take up real grown-up weapons. He was like seven years old in dog years. In hound of ulster years. Right, hound of ulster years. He didn't hear the last half of the prophecy that a warrior who took up arms for the first time that day would become famous for his manly warrior deeds, but his life would be very short. Like to- Achilles drink. (laughs) Conquivore <laughs> gave the boy a real shield and spear, and Cucullin broke them just by brandishing them. Because Cucullin is not housebroken. Don't let him in your house. Don't let him touch your stuff. He broke 14 more after that, before finally concavor gave him his own weapons, which totally makes no sense, and those did not break.
2: Yeah, the thing is, he was like, just give me my own weapons. And his uncle was like, you're seven. This is all going to pass. It's just a phase. Here's some shields, and here's a spear, and have fun. And Cucullin was breaking it over his knee like, nah, come on, I want my own.
0: Right. But then concavor had to give him his own shit because it was like the best made stuff. I think I think that's what was going on. Like he had to give him the highest quality spear in the house so he wouldn't break it. And that was his own spear.
2: Then Kankovar went off to find a chariot. He broke dozens of these, as you do, before concavar finally relented and lent him his own chariot along with his own charioteer.
0: I mean this just seems inadvisable.
2: Don't let Kukulin borrow your stuff. I mean the thing is, maybe just let him borrow your stuff from the BNA because if you try and lend him inferior quality stuff, he's going to break it and he's still going to get your stuff.
0: I mean, I basically only own inferior quality stuff, so Well, me too, except for like my shiny shiny necklaces. Right. I I just basically can't let Kukulin in my house. He's just not he's not housebroken. And also, he has no respect for other people's things. I mean, I'm kind of like that with books. I basically tell people, like, I use books really hard and, like, read with them in the bathtub. Oh, wait, this is where
2: we tell the funny story about how you ruined my book.
0: Oh, right. Yeah, so I'm basically the book (laughs) Cucullin.
2: you are. Do not lend Jenny Williams in your books. If you lend her a book in good faith when you're on holiday together, she will bend it back, get stand in the pages, probably let the waves roll over it three times like they did in pirate burials. She'll just ruin your book. So if you want to lend Jenny a book, just decide in your head that you've given it to her and that's
0: it. Or just don't lend me your books because you won't like me very much afterwards. I read books in the bathtub. I read them on the beach. I like take them all over. I drop them in a mud puddle and then read them some more once they dry out. Like I'm not precious about books.
2: Yeah, you read in a way that makes it impossible for anyone to read the book after you. I don't, I don't call it being precious. I call it like allowing other people to enjoy the book as well.
0: I'm a full contact reader. <laughs> yeah, you are. <laughs>
2: So Cucullin's been all kitted out, and he's got his chariot, and he rides off, raring for a fight, and of course, he finds one. He went into his warp spasm and slaughtered three brothers who'd boasted of killing more Ulstermen than were alive today. Then, he turned his chariot around and raced like the wind back to Ivan Vaca. The watchers on the castle walls saw Cucullin bearing down on the castle in the grip of his warp spasm, with three bloodied heads bouncing around the floor of his chariot, which I have questions like. It says they were bouncing around on the floor, but like the speed at which they must have been bouncing up and they could see them. And I don't know. I've got house, house, so many house. A wizard did it, Jen. (laughs) Patelli <laughs> has fixed it, it's fine. So fearsome did Kukulan look that the people of Ivan Vaca realized that they had to do something drastic. Otherwise, Kukulan in his battle frenzy might slaughter them all.
0: And I guess the solution that they thought of to this is totally one that you would think of. Concavor pointed a I just can't I'm, I'm having trouble with this paragraph. Fine. Jenny, just tell them what the solution was. The solution was boobs, okay? Konkavor pointed over the wall at Kukulin and cried, Naked women, to him! And the- Naked women, to him! <laughs> naked women! And that is... <laughs> and all the naked women who just happened to be sitting around in the castle jumped up and ran down there and bared their boobs at him. And Mugein, Konkabor's wife, who had a nickname that meant having coarse like pubic hair, which is just great, led them and said, quote, These are the warriors you must contend with now. She meant her boobs. I mean, I bet they were pretty
2: spectacular boobs.
0: I bet they were the greatest. Cucullin was apparently so mortified that he hid his face and a group of warriors seized him and dragged him inside and dunked him in a cauldron of cold water to cool him off. The cauldron cracked all around him and he was dunked in a second cauldron and it, quote, boiled with bubbles the size of fists. Only when he was dunked in a third cauldron of icy water did Kakulin come back to himself. And here you see a large magical cauldron motif that repeats in other Celtic myths and also repeats in Gallic iconography and like in the graves of ancient Gauls who had giant cauldrons, which we talked about in the last episode. So Gauls, drink. Can I also just say, he's six. Is he seven at this point? Oh,
2: no, seven. Sorry, he's seven. And when he gets really frenzied, he breaks cauldrons with his boiling face.
0: Don't let him in your house. Don't let him in your bathtub. If you've got boobs, just take him out.
2: It's the only thing that can stop him, apparently.
0: Here's the story of Cucullin and various women. Boobs. Boobs.
2: (laughs) They all have epic names and we'll get to them.
0: They all have epic names. They probably all had epic boobs, but this isn't about the boobs. It's about the relationships, Jen. You know,
2: we're saying boobs a lot. If we were guys in a podcast saying boobs as much, it would not be acceptable.
0: We're allowed to talk about boobs. I mean, how many boobs are in this conversation? (laughs) At least four. (laughs) Unless someone has more boobs than I know about.
2: (laughs) Anyway, moving on, Cacallan became the leader of konkavars in-group of rage warp spasm He-Man chariot warriors. He became known for his warrior prowess and, of course, his famous warp
3: spasms
2: <laughs> and for striking down a hundred men in a single blow and, you know, stuff like that. Men wanted to be him. Women wanted to sleep with him. Seriously, apparently all the women wanted to sleep with him. And no doubt some of the men did too. Because when he wasn't warp spasming, Cacullin was hot. <laughs> what is that? If that is the
0: warp spasm voice. It is <laughs> the warp spasm voice. I base this voice on Batman. Jen's warp spasm <laughs> voice sounds suspiciously like Christian Bale. So Cacullin is often
2: described as small in stature with gray eyes and dark hair and a kind of melancholy. Demeanor, dreamy, kind of emo. He's also described as being beardless. And people in the stories are forever underestimating him because he looks like a beardless boy because he might be anything from 11 to 17, depending on which story we're talking about. He kind of peaks early.
0: Well, he is a beardless boy. How old is he now? Like 10? I'm not sure, but it very
2: much is Achilles. It's like he'll be dead quite young. (laughs) There are some more interesting descriptions of him, though. Thomas Kinsella says his hair was, quote, smooth as though a cow had licked it.
0: Hot. Is it? (laughs) The thing is, Jen, he just had nice well-kept hair with cow spit. <laughs> So this is Cucullin when he cleans up. Quote, You would think he had three distinct heads of hair, brown at the base, blood red in the middle, and a crown of golden yellow. This hair was settled strikingly into three coils on the cleft at the back of his head. Each long, loose-flowing strand hung down in shining splendor over his shoulders, deep gold and beautiful and fine as a thread of gold. A hundred neat red-gold curls shone darkly on his neck, and his head was covered with a hundred crimson threads matted with gems. He had four dimples in each cheek, yellow, green, green, crimson and blue, and seven bright pupils, eye jewels, in each kingly eye. Each foot had seven toes, and each hand seven fingers, the nails with the grip of a hawk's claw or a griffin's clench. And here is a fun fact. So ancient writers from around maybe a thousand years before this story was written down, give or take, write about Celtic warriors putting lime in their hair to bleach and stiffen it. Diodorus in particular writes this about the Gauls, and we had this quote in the last episode, but I'm just gonna give it to you again here because it's short. Diodorus tells us, quote, there are always washing their hair in lime water, and they pull it back from the forehead to the top of the head and back to the nape of the neck. The treatment of their hair makes it so heavy and coarse that it differs in no respect from the mane of horses. And this particular paragraph that describes Kukulin's multicolored hair and elsewhere when they talk about the warp spasm and how his hair stuck up, the thing about Kukulin's warp spasm, where his hair stands up on his head, could be specifically referring to the practice of stiffening one's hair with lime before battle. And there's actually an old meme that says Kukulin Inspired this practice. And if that's the case, that means that this story must be really old indeed and a lot more widespread than you would think. Diodorus was writing between 90 and 30 BC. And also, another interesting thing here is that lime water doesn't just stiffen your hair, it bleaches it. So, if you're continually bleaching your hair and it grows out, and I know this from experience because my hair is currently bleached blonde right now, and I also have tried to dye my hair blonde using drugstore dye and lemon water and stuff, and this has happened to me before. If you're continually bleaching your hair and it grows out, you may eventually wind up with dark roots and kind of a reddish or strawberry blonde middle, depending on how dark your hair was to start with, and blasted blonde tips. And this description of Cucullin's tricolored hair might come from that, although it's a little bit backwards in this description because I think it's lighter at the top. And I
2: would say, like, I've got red hair, which is has a lot of different things in it. So if you're putting lime water into my hair, you're gonna get a ton of colors coming out. It'll be like a rainbow will come out, kind of like a red ombre rainbow. So I could see how he'd have darker pieces and lighter pieces because depending on what colors were in the makeup of his hair, he could have quite a lot. But I have a real question about this. And it's about the lime water. Are limes native to Ireland?
0: I think it's not lime like the fruit. It's like the mineral lime.
2: Oh, okay. So one day, Cullen, with his amazing hair, was hanging out with all his warrior friends at Conqueror's Hall, drinking from a great giant cauldron, which could hold, quote, hundred measures of coal black drink, which I want to know what that drink is, probably blood, and practicing with their weapons.
0: This harkens back to both the Lady of Vix and the Dwarf chieftain who had massive cauldron in their graves. But what was in them? Well, in the case of the Lady of Vicks, it could hold 1,500 bottles of wine. The Hogdorf chieftain's cauldron could hold 500 liters of mead. In fact, that was how much mead was in that cauldron when he was buried. Giant cauldrons, ubiquitous throughout Gaul. Could I have a bath in that wine cauldron? (laughs) Go into a warp spasm and I might have to stuff you in there just to get you to chill out. Don't tempt me, Jenny Williamson. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe that was an invitation. I don't know. That sounds like a fun Saturday. Anyway,
2: lots of famous warriors were in attendance, but Cacullen outshone them all, and women were suddenly finding excuses to wander by. Because Cacullen was single, and he had a banging head cleft, and he was totally, totally ready to mingle. The other warriors were getting uneasy that he might steal their wives or seduce their daughters because, I mean, he's got a banging head cleft.
0: He's got the head cleft. He's got the very colorful dimples. Conchobar
2: sent nine men into every province of Ireland looking for a wife for Cacullin. But Caculin already had someone in mind, Emer, the daughter of Forgal the Cunning. And one day he hopped in his chariot with his fancy chariot driver and set out to woo her as only a guy with a head cleft and magical rainbow hair can, He found her sitting in the grass outside her father's castle studying embroidery with her foster sisters because she was a very, very a good person who did all of the things that the Christians who were telling the story would want girls at that time to do. And he and Emer struck up a conversation in riddles. And here's how it went.
0: Quote, Cucullin caught sight of the girl's breasts over the top of her dress.
2: I see a sweet country, he said.
3: I could rest my weapon there.
0: No man will travel this country until he has killed a hundred men at every ford from Scheman Ford to the River Alebean. In that
3: sweet country, I'll rest my weapon. <laughs>
0: die. No man will travel this country until he has done the feat of the salmon leap, carrying twice his weight in gold, and struck down three groups of nine men, each with a single stroke, leaving the middle man of each nine unharmed.
3: In that sweet country, I'll rest my weapon.
0: (laughs) No man will travel this country who hasn't gone sleepless from Sawane when the summer goes to its rest until Imbuk when the yews are milked at spring's beginning.
3: It is said and done.
0: <laughs> that was a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing. I am one over. It was. And we tease and we need no harm with it. Anyway, so this this whole flirting and riddles, right? Number one, I think Emer is really carrying the load of the flirting and riddles here. Like, Kukulin is basically like texting her in Tinder. Kukowin is one step above sending her dick pics. She's this- edging closer <laughs> to it.
2: <laughs> really edging closer. He's like, I see that. I'm going to plow that. That's literally what he's saying.
0: going to put my weapon in there. Which is not a great pickup line. I think he learned it from Cathbad. I also want to say,
2: like, Emer be careful what you wish for. Like, if you know anything about these stories, you know that he's going to do all of these things, and then you're going to be stuck with him. Just maybe, if you're trying to choose a husband, give them actual tasks that are going to tell you whether or not they're going to be a good a match. Not like killing and salmon leaping and killing and...
0: Times are tough, Jen. You need a dude who can do the salmon leap. You do, but I would also like a dude who can like balance the household
2: <laughs> bills and not get us
0: sold into debt in Rome. Doing the dishes, <laughs> picking up his socks, occasionally vacuuming. These are the warrior feats of good partner material. Anyway, after that conversation, these two were wildly in
2: love. That's how love works. I did my warp spasm voice. If you don't love me, I don't know what to tell
0: you. I am smitten, Jen. As you should be. I'm just over here with hard eyes right now. It's all right, warp spasm voice. She doesn't mean to hurt your feelings. I'm not. I'm serious. (laughs) I love you, warp spasm voice. (laughs) 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 <laughs> anyway. you'll hurry up before I give your warp spasm voice some tasks and then live to regret it.
2: <laughs> Very true. But Emer's father disapproved of this match.
0: Why? That's a shocker. I know.
2: He wasn't thrilled that the seven-year-old who like went on a murdering spree and had to be stopped by boobs wants to court his daughter. Can't imagine why.
0: I think he's like 11 at this point. I think he's aged up a little bit.
2: I think he's aged up, but what I'm saying is the stories of the seven-year-old murderer haven't gone away. I mean, the fact that he was stopped by a Bunch of boobs not going to live that down. Yeah, he's never going to live that down. So, Emer's father engineered to have Cucullan sent away to train with the warrior woman, Skatach, or the shadowy one, in the hope that her training would be so rigorous that she might actually kill him. So, Cucullan leaped at this chance because it sounds like fun. And before he left, he and Ymir vowed to remain pure for each other until they met again. So, Skatok lived in Alba, which is in Scotland, in a vigorously defended stronghold on an island that was difficult to find. Because if you're going to be a warrior woman who trains other warriors, you better make it difficult for them to find you because that is part of the quest, man.
0: Right. So I'm just going to give you a spoiler here. The super difficult Scottish island that was really hard to find was the Isle of Sky. I read somewhere that there you actually sent me this link, Jen. There's some ruins that are identified to be Skatak's stronghold in the Isle of Sky, And I did not go down that rabbit hole of figuring out what these ruins actually are. But I'll put a link in the show notes.
2: Yeah. And if I ever get there, I'm going to take all the pictures.
0: Yeah. And there was also a thing that I read somewhere. There's like a pile of things that I read somewhere that I cannot corroborate, but that sound really right. And one of those is that the Isle of Skye was actually named Skatak. I don't know if that's true.
2: Well, let's hope it was. And if it's not, we apologize.
0: I might have made it up, but it sounds great.
2: <laughs> so warriors who sought to train with her died just trying to get to her stronghold. But Cullen found her island because it was the Isle of Skye, accessible only by way of an extremely irritating smackdown bridge. Kinsella tells us that, quote, no sooner did a person step onto one end, but the other end flew up at him and threw him on his back. Cucullin tried to cross the bridge three times and failed, and by this time his men were making fun of him. So our Cucullin went into his warp spasm and performed the hero salmon leap the salmon leap the salmon leap and jumped right onto the middle of the bridge and then leaped to the far end so fast that the bridge couldn't fly up and smack him down again Cucullin ran up to skatak's fort and broke down the door skatak sent her daughter uaha down to see what all the commotion was about uaha saw Cucullin and immediately fell in love with him
0: I mean, he does have a magic head cleft.
2: <laughs> She welcomed him into the castle, feasting with him and flirting with him. And then the two started to play wrestle. And this turned into a sexual manner of play wrestling. And
0: they were wrestling right on the floor of the living room like a couple of puppies
2: as you do when you're with the Hound of Ulster. And as you can guess, Cucullin immediately broke his vow to Ymir with the first woman he met.
0: So Cucullin got a little bit too rough with the horseplay, and he hurt her finger, and she screamed, whereupon Skatok's champion, who was Oaha's lover because mama's got needs, all right, rushed in to save her. Cucullin killed this man on the spot and cut off his head right then and there because that's what he does, and Oaha was not pleased. But Cucullin vowed to take on all the dead man's duties, including leading Skatak's army. And I'm definitely sensing a pattern here.
2: Yeah, it's totally a pattern. He just kills someone and takes their jobs. (laughs) So after three days, Skatak Still refused to teach and can't imagine why. She's
0: probably really just like, I would kick this guy out, but he's such a pain in the ass to kick out. I'm just hoping he'll go away if I ignore him.
2: Uaha told him to go to the place where she was training her own sons and gave him very specific instructions, which Kekalan followed to the letter. He, quote, went up to Skata and stripped his sword and put the point to her heart and said, Death is hanging over you. <laughs>
0: I'll give you any three things, she said, if you can ask
2: them in one breath. Cacullin asked for what Uaha had told him to ask for. Thorough training, a dowry for when he married, and a prediction of his future.
0: Did you say that in one breath? I think I did. Granted, your wish
2: is granted. Skata agreed to train him, and while he stayed there, he slept with Uaha. And maybe also get it on with Skata because he might have been part Julian Claudian and just kept it all in the family.
0: So Skatah trained other men too, and one of those was a guy named Ferdiad, who was a warrior from Kanat, which was a neighboring country to Ulster, which is where Cuchulain was from. And
2: where Fergus got exiled, too.
0: Right, Fergus got exiled to Connaught. Anyway, so Connaught and Ulster are frequently at war, and despite that, these two guys, Ferdiad and Cuchulain, become very close, learning all the same moves, and they also became lovers. Aw, they're Achilles
2: and Patrocles.
0: Yes! Okay, drink. But yes, actually. I mean, because Patrocles kind of humanizes... Achilles, and I think that Ferdiad plays that role with Cuchulain a little bit, too. Incidentally, ancient writers definitely do mention men sleeping with men in Celtic culture, and there's a quote from Diodorus who says, quote, Although their wives are comely, they have very little to do with them, but rage with lust in outlandish fashion for the embraces of males. It is their practice to sleep upon the ground on the skins of wild beasts and to tumble with a catamite on each side. And remember, a catamite is a male lover. This is definitely pretty homophobic, but it's still... Describing that this happens. And we apologize for that. (laughs) Skatak taught both boys lots of feats. Quote, The apple feet, the thunder feet, the feats of the sword edge and the sloped shield, the feats of the javelin and rope, the body feet the feet of the cat and the heroic salmon leap, the pole throw and the leap over a poisoned stroke, the noble chariot fighters crouch, the spurt of speed, the feet of the chariot wheel thrown on high and the feet of the shield rim, the breath feet with gold apples blown up in the air, the snapping mouth and the hero's scream, the stroke of precision, the stunning shot and the cry stroke, stepping on a lance in flight and straightening erect on its point, the sickle chariot and the trussing of a warrior on the point of spears. So, A lot of these feats are their own descriptions. For most of them, we don't really know what they are. I want to zero in, though, on the salmon leap, which comes up a lot. Atlantic salmon live around the coast of Ireland and run up its rivers every year to spawn. And the Irish would have been well acquainted with the sight of salmon heroically leaping up waterfalls, which is maybe where this salmon's leap thing comes from. And I can definitely leave a link in the show notes to pictures of salmon leaping up waterfalls. It's really cool to watch.
2: So Cullen learned all these feats. Training with his lover and brother-in-arms for dad.
0: I think he was also sleeping with both Uaha and Skatak at the same time. He had like three different friends with benefits going on here. And also he was learning all these feats.
2: It was just all the fun for him at this point in his life. The two learned all the same moves and often sparred together. Skatach taught one thing just to Cucullin, however. How to use the Gaibolga. This was a mythic spear that broke into fragments whenever it entered an opponent's body. It had been made from the bones of a sea monster that had died fighting another sea monster and we kind of think it was probably a mosasaur.
0: Made from the bones of mosasaurs.
2: Exactly. And it had to be thrown with the feet, not the hands. It was said that the Gaibolga never missed and never failed to deliver a killing wound. Skitokh had a deadly enemy, Eva the chieftain of the neighboring tribe, purported to be, quote, the hardest woman warrior in the world. On the of battle with Aoife, Skatokh gave Kukulin a sleeping draught and tied him to his bed so that he wouldn't rush into battle and get killed. But it didn't work. The draught wore off and Kukulin broke his bonds and ran to join the battle. He cut a bloody path through Skatokh's enemies and Aoife noticed his prowess. She challenged him to single combat.
0: Before the combat, Kukulin asked Skatokh what Aoife valued most in the world. Three things, Skatokh said. Her horses, her chariot, and her charioteer. I mean, that girl knew where her priorities lay. So here is how the battle went down. Quote, Cuchulain met and fought Ifa on the rope of feet. I have this picture of them fighting on a tightrope. Aoife smashed Cuchulain's weapon. All she left him was a part of his sword, no bigger than a fist. Look, oh look, Cuchulain cried. Aoife's charioteer and her two horses and the chariot have all fallen into the valley. They are all dead. I mean, come on. Oh, Cuchulain. This is so transparent. Aoife looked round and Cuchulain leaped at her and took her on his back like a sack. Seriously? Do better. Thank you, Jen. Do better. And brought her back to his own army and held a naked sword over her. Do it, Jen. Do the voice. Grant me three desires. What you can ask in one (laughs) breath you may have, she said. My three
3: desires are hostages for Skoktok and never attack her again. Your company tonight in your own fort and bear me a son.
0: Okay, number one, that is four things. Number two, I did not do that in one breath. (laughs) You do not get what you wish for. You failed. The feat of asking for things in one breath and counting how many things you're asking for accurately. In a Batman voice, it's just too much for me. (laughs) In the Batman voice, you have failed at that feat. <laughs> <laughs> Ifa was totally down for this, apparently. The two of them started up a steamy affair. This would be who? The fourth person that Cuchulain was sleeping with, who was not the woman that he swore to be pure to. Maybe it's just pure means a whole different thing to Cuchulain. I don't know. Anyway, so they had a steamy affair and Ifa got pregnant with a son. Cuchulain gave Ifa a gold thumb ring and told her to send the boy to him in Ireland when his thumb was big enough to fit the ring.
2: Then Cucullin returned to Ulster to marry Emer who had been totally faithful to him even though Cucullin had been basically sticking it to everything that moved. But getting Emer would be its own heroic feat because Emer's father had set up such a strong guard that it took Cucullin a whole year to break through. In the process of trying Cucullin slew eight men in a single stroke while leaving the ninth one alive and he did this three times and each time the man left alive was one of Emer's brothers because he really didn't want to have... Have to do with that Christmas get-together if he killed the brothers as well.
0: The family reunions would be super awkward, although not more awkward than a Julio-Claudian family reunion.
2: Well, they're all related to each other five times over
0: (laughs) and all planning to marry
2: each other. (laughs) They're all
0: sleeping together and they're all trying to poison each other at the same time.
2: Breaking through Emer's dad's defenses took a whole year. Finally, Cacohen managed it, kidnapped Emer and one of her maidservants and made off with her in his chariot, killing a hundred men at every ford he came across so that he could be sure of fulfilling her expectations in a partner.
0: This is what she asked for. It is. Is what she asked for and we told her earlier be careful what you wish for. Yeah, be careful what you asked the Batman voice to do for you.
2: So Cullen returned to Conkavore's castle with his fiance and her maidservant who let's be honest he was probably sleeping with and when he got there he realized he had another problem. Conkavore had the right of first night. Whenever any of his subjects got married he got to sleep with that woman on the wedding night because this is awful.
0: And bear in mind that Conkavore is Kukulin's uncle and also like his foster father. So he's kind of like his uncle dad. <laughs> <laughs> We've seen this before. <laughs> uncle dad congivore. And now he gets to sleep with Kukulin's new wife. This understandably did not make Cucullin happy. He, quote, grew wild at this and trembled so hard that the cushion burst under him and the feathers flew around the house. Although this is a little bit hypocritical because he just slept with like four other people at Skatok's place. I mean, what happens at Skatok's place stays at Skatok's place, Okay. I mean, it's like what happens
2: in Messalina
0: Palace. Right, what happens in the Imperial Brothel stays in the Imperial Brothel. This presented a dilemma for Conchavor. I guess Conchavor has a problem here. He couldn't refuse to sleep with Emer because it would look like he was giving way to Cucullin. Honor was at stake. Plus, he did it with all his other men's wives, so how bad would it look that Cucullin got to be exempt and they didn't? But Cucullin was kind of a dangerous guy, especially when he went into his warp spasm. Warp
3: spasm? <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to keep all of these in. (laughs) Oh my god, I am!
0: Each and every warp spasm voice is going into this episode. Lovingly curated. (laughs) (laughs) Collection of Jen's warp spasm voices.
2: The first time I hear it played back to me, because I can't, I don't know how it actually sounds... gonna wet myself. <laughs> it sounds phenomenal.
0: Anyway, so the whole point of this is that pissing off Cucullin is kind of suicidal and you do not want to do it. So an unhappy Kukulin is a very loud and disruptive Kukulin. So concavor told him to go outside and run around the house a couple times, which is totally a thing that my dad used to do when I was acting up when I was a little kid. He'd just be like, yeah, go outside and run around the house. What he really did was tell Kukulin to go and gather together all the deer and all the wild boar and every kind of fly creature in the woods around even Vaka and bring them all to him. So go and harass some animals. Kukulin did as he was told and concavor called for the druid Cathbad who always has a pickup line for every occasion and this is a great time for that. They talked the problem over and decided that concavor would sleep with Emer that night but Cathbad would sleep between them so that nothing untoward would happen. I feel really
2: bad for Emer here because she's got like the weirdest three-way. Here. No one's asking her
0: what should happen. (laughs) Number
2: one, it's a very odd wedding night. Deeply awkward. So that was Ymir's incredibly awkward wedding night. And Conquivar provided the girl with a dowry the next day. I mean, it's literally the least he could do. Cucullin already had a dowry from Skata. And fun fact, in Celtic culture, the men and women both brought a dowry to the marriage. You also see this in Gallic culture. Ymir and Cucullin were never parted until death, except when Cucullin was sleeping with other women and out fighting. And this happened all the time.
0: I guess they didn't see each other very much is the bottom line. I mean, that is maybe why their marriage lasted. You might have hit the nail on the head right there. So Emer was described as having the six gifts of womanhood, a gentle voice, sweet words, beauty, wisdom, chastity, and skill at needlework. I have absolutely none of those gifts of womanhood. I don't either. Don't really want to either. Needlework sounds good. I mean, but other than that, I'm like, I'd like a sweet voice. I think our listeners would like that. I kind of think I sound like a sick ostrich whenever I listen to the recordings, but that's just me. I have so many thoughts about Emer, you know, because I feel like in the Ulster cycle, a lot of the time what happens is Kukulin is just hounding around out there and Emer is completely, like, most of the time she knows about it and she's just completely chill because she... It does not feel threatened by this at all. And I just have to like roll my eyes a little bit because it's just so unequal because of course she's not allowed to sleep around. And I also question whether this picture of Emer was a later Christian invention because it kind of doesn't sound like the contemporary accounts of Celtic women.
2: Well, it really doesn't, especially when you look at Cucullin's mother, who is his uncle's charioteer. His
0: uncle dad's charioteer.
2: Yeah, I mean, women had it seems, and I, I don't know and I could be wrong, but in the earlier part of this story, they had a lot more agency and I think there is a Christian lens on it because things like needlework and chastity and sweet voice, that sounds a lot more like it was written in the 1100s and it was really giving her that Christian ideal
0: Yeah, there is one thing about I kind of realized about Cocullen and Emer's relationship though, is that Emer was supposed to be kind of brainy and smart. The riddle conversation, that's kind of part of it where they have this conversation and Emer is like really smart with her riddles and that is what makes Cullen fall for her. It's her brains. So she's kind of like Penelope then. Yeah, she is a little bit like Penelope and everyone who is doing the drinking game should drink. As always, I mean, it wouldn't be this podcast. (laughs) You don't see him doing this a lot in this particular story that I'm telling. But in the Ulster Cycle, sometimes you see Kukulin doing stuff like he plays chess a lot. And his father, Lou, was the god of chess and stuff. So he also has this brainy side. It's kind of cool that he likes her for her mind.
2: Yeah, which is really sweet, actually. I kind of like the idea that he is quite strategic and brainy and not just killing things all the time.
0: He's a complicated guy, okay, Jen? He's not just a warp spasming, head cleft hottie. <laughs> well, I like a complicated guy and I like his head cleft. Don't let the head cleft near you because all of a sudden you're just going to be like, take me now, Kukulin. Whoop Warp spasm? <laughs> it's like all of a sudden he's nudging you with his head cleft and you're lost. <laughs> I feel like this is your ghost pregnancy, not mine. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not getting ghost pregnant. I'm using protection around the head cleft. So there's a quote here from Diodorus, who naturally has a totally negative thing that he wants to tell you about women in Celtic society this time. He says, quote, they feel no concern for their proper dignity but prostitute to others without a qualm, the flower of their bodies. Nor do they consider this a disgraceful thing to do, but rather when any of them is thus approached and refuses the favor offered him, this they consider an act of dishonor. He's obviously being a jerk about it, but the sense that we get here is of women who kind of get to do what they want sexually in a way that the ancient Romans do not. Queen Maeve, who we're going to meet later, maybe a more older and possibly more accurate representation of what pre-Christian Celtic women might have been like.
2: So Cucullin married Emer, and across the sea in Alba, Aoife heard the news. She realized that Cucullin, the dog that he was, must have known this girl while he'd been with her. He'd gone to his marriage still warm from her bed, and this enraged her, and she vowed revenge. But Eva's revenge was a dish best served cold. She raised her son, Conla, in the proud warrior tradition, teaching him every trick Cúchulainn knew. Then she sent him to Skatach to learn more. Because I guess they mended all their bridges and were friends now. They
0: have Cúchulainn in common, so there's that. Maybe they bonded over their
2: polyamorous relationship with Cúchulainn and now they were all friends. When the boy had grown so that Cúchulainn's ring fit on his thumb, Eva sent him to Ireland to find his father, but not before giving him three gisa or sacred prohibitions. He could not give way to any man, he could never give his own name first, and he could never back down from a fight, even if he knew he'd lose. And I mean, Mom, that is a lot of pressure to put on your son.
0: It is a lot of pressure.
2: You're really stacking the decks against him? I thought we were supposed to be, like, making it easier for him, but no.
0: No, we're not. What we're doing is using our child as a vehicle for vengeance, number one. And number two, this is a whole lot of policing your son's conversation. You're not allowed to give your own name first, they have to give their name
2: first. Totally. Conla traveled to Ireland and landed on the beach near Vaca. A messenger from Conkvar found him and asked his name. And Conla refused to give it because he couldn't. Refusing to give your name to the king's messenger in a foreign land was a major breach of protocol. And breaches of protocol in this world were deadly insults, even if the offending person didn't know the protocol because let's just stack those decks against him.
0: When he heard the news that there was a boy on the beach who refused to give his name to the king's messenger, Conkvar was offended. The nerve. The nerve of this young man, refusing to give his name to the king. So he sent his best warriors down one by one to teach this kid a lesson. And Conla beat them all one by one. So finally, Concavor hauled out the big guns and sent down Cúchulainn. Cúchulainn went down to this beach and he saw that the offending party was just a kid. And he said, Look, the only reason everyone here is being so hard on you is that you refuse to follow the protocol. Just not like Kukulin has ever done that himself. Give us your name and nobody has to get killed. And for Kukulin, this is being incredibly reasonable. This is
2: that reasonable side of him. Ymir has brought out the best in him.
0: Yeah, because they're married now and I think Ymir is showing him another way. Kanla felt a great urge to give this stranger his name. Still, he couldn't because of his Gisa, the magical prohibitions he couldn't break. So Kanla explained about the Gisa. he wasn't allowed to give his name first. He asked Cucullin if he might not agree to back down from the fight instead. And of course, Cucullin couldn't do that. Honor was at stake honor was at stake. Thank you, Jen. His king's honor was at stake. And everyone was watching from the castle walls. If he backed down from a fight right now in front of everyone, he would never live it down. And so
2: they fought. It was the hardest fight of Cucullin's life. This nameless boy knew every one of his tricks and saw his every move coming almost before he made it. It was kind of like magic. For perhaps the first time in his life, Cucullin thought he might lose. But then he Whoops
1: bezund
2: and seized up his guy Bolka. The moment Conla saw Kakulan's Whoops Basum, he realized that this must be his father, and he deliberately pulled his spear throw, but Kukulan did not pull his throw. He thrust his spear into the enemy's guts, disemboweling him. And Conla, standing with his guts around his feet, raised his hand to show his father the thumb ring he'd left with his mother all that time ago. Kakulan was struck with grief. He ran to his son and put his arms around him, carefully lowering him to the ground. Both of them wept and cursed Aoife. He'd set the whole thing up. And then Cucullin called to the heroes of the Red Branch to come down and give their names to his son. And they did, one by one, and Conla embraced each man before he died.
0: Concavor was worried that Cúchulainn's grief might drive him mad and that he'd turn on his own friends in a rage. To prevent that, the druid Cathbad cast a spell on Cúchulainn. If he wanted revenge, he should take it out on the waves in the Strand. So for three days and three nights, Kukulin fought the waves until he fell down exhausted. It's just so heartbreaking. It just kind of shows the extremes that this honor-bound warrior culture forced people to. Neither one of them could back down from a fight, and that put them both in a really bad situation.
2: I have to say this, though. Like, Conla, you had a piece of jewelry. Just flash up that thumb ring, man. Just be like, yo, can't give you my name, but I can show you my ring.
0: Yeah, I definitely think that the timing was everything with the whole thumb ring situation. Could have changed the whole outcome, but no. But no, that's not how tragic stories work. I mean, there is a hole in that plot, and I'm just going to go ahead and say that a wizard did it. Cathbad did it. Let's blame Cathbad. <laughs> so
2: our next i think it's our final story is the cattle raid
0: so the cattle raid is what this has all been building up to i know the kingdom of
2: ulster had a deadly enemy the neighboring kingdom of connaught this country was ruled by a king and queen ilo and Maeve. queen Maeve was a formidable woman beautiful wealthy a ferocious war leader and sexually promiscuous sounds like our kind of girl yeah, she's actually pretty badass. Her name is derived from the proto-Celtic word for mead, and it may mean mead woman.
0: Yeah, and it might also mean one who intoxicates.
2: That's an amazing name. It was said that she needed 30 men to satisfy her in bed. I mean, this is sounding very Messalena-esque, guys. It's just a data point. 30 men. It's a very specific data point, though. Her husband, Alo, was much younger than her and was distantly related. He'd been sent by his parents to be raised by Maeve and her first husband. He grew up to be a skilled warrior.
0: He was a foster son.
2: Yeah, and he later became Maeve's lover because cougar. Because that is how
0: Maeve rolls, okay? Okay.
2: Exactly. And when Maeve's husband found out, he tried to send Ilo away, but Maeve refused to let him go.
0: Because mama's got needs, honey. Mama needs your biscuit.
2: And then Maeve's husband challenged Ilo to single combat and lost. So Ilo became Maeve's next husband and the king of Knaut. And I think it's really interesting here that that line is matrilineal and not patrilineal. The ruling of the land stays with Maeve, not her husband.
0: Yeah, that is really interesting, isn't it? So one day Maeve and a got talking about which one of them had come to the marriage with more wealth and of course because this was the ancient world things got completely out of hand honor was at stake honor was at stake thank you warp spasm voice <laughs> suddenly each of them was pulling out all of their belongings from their jewels and golden plates and precious stones right down to the wash buckets and it turned out that they were actually pretty much equal Except for one thing. Ailil had a prize bull, and Maeve didn't. This bull, Finnebach by name, had actually once belonged to Maeve, but had refused to belong to a woman, so he'd wandered over to Ailil's herd because toxic masculinity, even among the livestock. Maeve sent messengers throughout the land to find a woke feminist prize bull to outshine her husband's red pill douchebag bull. As you bloody well do. Right, because thank you, I agree. It turned out the bull she wanted was an Ulster, it was owned by a man named Dair, who I'm probably mispronouncing, and Maeve sent messengers with this offer. All he had to do was loan the bull to her for a year. He didn't even have to give it to her, just loan it to her. And she'd pay him 50 yearling heifers, a chariot worth 21 bondmaids, which is super specific. I mean, how much is a bondmaid as a unit of currency? I don't know. And quote, her own friendly thighs, Maeve and A'lil, by the way, in case you have not figured this out, were ethically non-monogamous. So Dair
2: wasn't a total idiot. He enthusiastically agreed to this deal and threw a big feast for Maeve's messengers to celebrate. At this feast, the messengers got drunk and made an ill-advised boast about how if Dair hadn't agreed to the deal, they'd just have taken the bull anyway. I mean, not a smooth move, guys. You'd think Dair would have laughed this off, but this is the ancient world, and things escalated extremely quickly.
0: (laughs) Once again, (laughs) honor was at stake. Honor was at stake. <laughs> this is the best episode we've ever done.
2: Dyer was suddenly forced to prove his honor by insisting the messengers couldn't have taken that bull. No one could have taken that bull without permission. That bull didn't go anywhere without his say so. And that, in fact, the entire army of CNOT could, could not take that bull if he
0: didn't want to give it. Just forget about the friendly thighs. Just forget about it. And furthermore,
2: now the deal was off and they could just try and take it if they wanted it so bad just bring it so queen mev heard the deal was off and she decided to go there herself and have a reasonable conversation with Dutyer like an adult
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's not what happened. It's
2: not April Fool's yet, <laughs> is it? Anyway, she started assembling an army, guys. We're not done with this story yet.
0: So Maeve called together all the named heroes in her land, including her seven sons, whose names were all Maine and who were referred to as the Maine. Don't ask questions. A wizard did it. And two people Cucullin knew well. Ferdiad, his friend and lover from his time with Skatah, and Fergus, his foster father who had been exiled to Cannat. And you could kind of see why Fergus would want to fight Concavor, who just usurped his crown when he was seven and exiled. Fergus. But in the stories, Fergus seems remarkably chill about this, so I don't know. Maybe it's fine with him. Maybe he's enlightened, you know. So thousands of people assembled and they started advancing on Ulster. Ulster was home to many famous heroes who were more than capable of taking on this army. But as Maeve's army approached, an old curse put them all out of commission. Here's how it had happened.
2: Ages ago, Vaka, the goddess of avon Vakha, married a mortal man named Krunik. And one day, at a festival, Krunik had a few too many. You know, he really liked that giant cauldron full of mead. And he boasted to the king of Ulster that his wife could outrace all of the king's chariots. The king laughed it off like a reasonable person and ordered another round of mead. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) Yeah. He had Kruanuk arrested and threatened him with death unless his wife came right now this very instant and proved his Boast. The thing was, Farco was heavily pregnant. Some accounts say she was actually in labor. But, you know, honor
3: was at stake.
2: Honor was at stake! And the king refused to back down. Vaca showed up and raced those chariots, and she won, of course, and then she gave birth to twins, as you do right there on the finish line. In between labor screams, she cursed the men of Ulster that in their greatest hour of need, they would all become weak with the pain of childbirth. What a curse. Yeah, that's a great curse. I know, and this was now the hour of Ulster's greatest need, and all of its men were down with labor pains. All of them, that is, except for Cucullin, maybe because he's a demigod.
0: Cucullin was supposed to be guarding the border, but he let Maeve and Eileel's entire army slip by in the night because he was having sex with a woman who was not his wife. Way to go, Cucullin. When he realized what happened, he set off with his charioteer and chased after the army. So Cucullin basically had one job here. Slow Maeve's army down so that Ulster's heroes would have time to recover from the labor pangs. He did it through psychological guerrilla warfare. Keeping himself hidden, Cuchulain stalked Maeve's army, picking off her soldiers with his sling. And there are gory descriptions of people's heads randomly bursting and brains flying everywhere from Cuchulain's sling stones. What Cuchulain's doing is he's acting like a weaker army, harrowing a stronger one. Right, Jen? Like he's staying in the shadows. He's picking them off. Anyone who separates themselves from the army to go and forage, he's terrorizing them and killing them so they can't even go forage. He's basically conducting a guerrilla war campaign.
2: Yeah, and I wanted to just stop for a minute about sling stones. And I don't know if we've talked
0: about it before or not. We probably have. We have talked about sling stones several times. They were really dangerous.
2: They were so dangerous. And they were one of those things that before this podcast, I was like, eh, whatever. It's a little stone. They were like ancient world bullets. If you had a really skilled slinger from a certain distance, it would be like a bullet.
0: Slings were extremely deadly. And if you had like a slinger core in your army, it was one of the most dangerous sections of your army. If you're in a museum and you see sling bullets from like Greece or different regions that really specialized in this. They do look like bullets. I have to say it every single time because every single time I'm like, how did you
2: not realize they were like ancient world bullets?
0: So Kuchelins operating like a sharpshooter here and just picking people off. He's a sniper just hanging out in the woods. He also used the honor-bound, never-back-down warrior culture to his advantage. He isolated Maeve's named warriors and invoked the custom of single combat at river fords, which is a shallow place in the river where you cross, forcing them to stop and fight him. And he invariably won because he's Cuchulain and left the heads on pikes for Maeve's army to find. He also left challenges for Maeve's army, like cutting down a massive oak tree in the path of the approaching army and carving a message in it that none should pass until someone from that army jumped that oak on his chariot on the first attempt, but not Ferdiad because he knew Ferdiad could do it. So sit down, Ferdiad, not you. You don't count. No, Ferdiad, you're not invited to this
2: table. Go sit with the kid.
0: Well, I mean, the cool thing about Ferdiad is that he keeps up with Kukulin a lot and he doesn't have like demigod status. He's just a regular human. I think he's got some magic armor or something, but he's not like half god. No wonder Cucullin is like, just sit down and don't do it because he might outshine me. Yeah. So anyway, none of Maeve's famous heroes could stand to back down from a challenge. So the entire army had to stop and pitch camp while they all attempted to leap the oak tree in their chariots. 30 horses were killed and 30 chariots smashed before someone finally leaped over the oak tree. And it was Fergus, Cucullin's foster dad of course it was. At
2: this point, the men in Maeve's army were freaked out, and rightly so. They kept coming upon the heads of men that Cucullin was impaling on pikes and spears, and heads had been exploded with slingstones, and they were named heroes, and they were more than a match for anyone. They shouldn't have been dying so easily. Only Ferdiad and Fergus recognized what was going on. They regaled Maeve, Eilil, and anyone within earshot with the tales of Cucullin's heroic boyhood, adding to the general anxiety because, if you didn't think that he was bad now, let me tell you about the seven-year-old and the three heads in the chariot and the boobs. And all the shit he broke. One day, Queen Mav rebuked her warriors, demanding to know why they weren't chasing after this pestering demon who was killing you all. She sent a large group after Cucullin, hoping to ambush him and sidestep the rules of honorable combat. Meanwhile, Kukalun was wandering through the woods looking for more ways to terrorize Maeve's army when he came upon the stranger. This is nuts, he thought. What's an Ulsterman doing here so close to the invading army?
0: Yeah, for some reason he thought it was like someone from his side and not someone from Maeve's army. Maybe the guy was in an Ulsterman
2: outfit. We don't know.
0: Right. Maybe he was wearing the, the Ulster outfit. What is that? I'm not sure. but I mean, that would actually make a lot of sense
2: if he was scouting ahead for Maeve's army and trying to find out where Cucullin was. Of course, you'd put on the clothes that were native to that region. That makes total sense. I've solved it. It's okay. We don't need a wizard this time. We didn't need
0: a wizard. Jen did it.
2: I'm the wizard. But as Cucullin got closer, thinking maybe he'd warn the guy about this army over the ridge, the closer he got, the more he realized that this man was a charioteer from Maeve's army, and his master was nowhere to be seen. Quote, What are
0: you doing here? I'm getting chariot shafts. We smashed our chariots chasing that wild deer Cucullin. Help me out, would ya? Would you rather cut the shafts or do the trimming? I'll do the trimming. And then, under the charioteer's eye, he stripped the holly shafts through his clutched fist, paring them clean, knot and bark. The charioteer freaked out, Who are you? Ka! Kukulin, said Kukulin,
2: surprising no one. Seeing how freaked out the charioteer was, he said, I have no quarrel with charioteers.
0: He then went and found the charioteer's master, killed that guy, cut off his head, and brandished it at the approaching army. Raw!
2: here's a (laughs) head Cucullin tied the head to the charioteer's back and told him to keep it there all the way back to camp or else the charioteer rushed back as fast as he could and Queen Maeve met him just outside the camp he explained to her what had happened finishing with quote and then he told me that if I didn't take it on my back all the way to the camp he'd break my head with the stone and then the charioteer took the head off his back to show her and of course Cucullin was a man of his word he sent some sleep stones whistling through the air, breaking the man's head and splattering his brains everywhere.
0: Yeah, because he can't go back on his word.
2: No, he gave you one simple thing to do. He didn't want to split your head open with the sling stone.
0: You know what, charioteer guy? You had one job, and that one job was don't take the head off until you get into the camp
2: wasn't difficult. Cucullin's
0: harassment by
2: Slingstone got more intense after that. He started exploding the heads of anyone who talked smack about him in Maeve's army, including Maeve and Aleel's own sons. They had seven and they were all named Maine and referred to as the Maine because that is so great. And, you know, also seven because no matter how many times Cucullin killed them, there was somehow seven of them. A wizard did it. Maybe they're rabbits.
0: It's entirely possible whenever we talk about Maeve and Aleel, picture rabbits. And
2: Maeve and alil had a lot of pets. They were animals. People and Kukulin targeted those as well. So Kukulin took the head of Maeve's dog because he's a dick with a sling stone when she was out just walking the dog, not looking for a fight. And he picked her prize squirrel off her shoulder with another stone and he killed it because nothing good can last in the ancient
0: world. Because Kukulin is not an animal person. I mean, I think we've shown this with the dog story. She had a little squirrel that she tamed with some acorns and he killed it. He was just doing his job. I guess he's become the hound of Cullen. He's He's just doing his job. And we've come full circle. So, meanwhile, Kukulan also started targeting Maeve herself with his sling stones, and it got so bad that she couldn't leave her tent, except with a crowd of guards holding barrel-shaped shields over her head. Kukulan even killed one of her maids by accident, thinking it was her. Maeve tried to restore her army's confidence, saying that Kukulan only had one body. He could be wounded just like anyone else, but she had nastier ways to get her own back. Like sending her army out to lay waste to the countryside, burning up crops and villages, and rounding up women, children, and cattle for food and slaves. She made sure that as long as Cucullin made her army sit still, the land suffered. But Maeve also had another problem. Chulainn had killed so many of her named heroes that they were now refusing to fight him at the fords. So she pulled out her secret weapon, her daughter Finnebert. The Welsh version of this name is actually Guinevere. Finnebert was exceptionally beautiful, completely untouchable because she was the daughter of the king and queen, and Maeve started offering her around. She offered the girl's hand in marriage to warrior after warrior to persuade them all to fight Chulainn, and there were a lot of takers. And this was, of course, reprehensible.
2: But Maeve wasn't above doing this herself as well. It was how she'd kept Fergus, Cacullin's foster dad, loyal by carrying on a quote unquote secret affair with him. Actually, a knew and approved of this affair up until a point.
0: There's a whole thing where he gets super jealous later, but it's like way after the fact. And at the moment, he's like, yeah, it's fine. She's doing what she has to do. Exactly.
2: And, you know, Maeve probably had some magic lady bits.
0: I think all signs point to a magic V.
2: Kukalan fought warrior after warrior. Some of these were men that he knew. Many had trained with him at Skatakh's school. Meanwhile the landscape was starting to dissolve into a deserted wasteland because as much as he fought to slow the army, K'Kal'in couldn't actually stop it from ravaging his homeland. And one day, as he wandered the burned-out glens and blood-choked rivers of his homeland, a young, beautiful woman came to him. Who are
0: you? I'm King Buon's daughter, and I have brought you my treasure and cattle. I love you because of the great tales I have heard. You
3: come at a bad time. (laughs)
0: keep going warp spasm voice
3: we no longer flourish here but famish i can't attend to a woman during a struggle like this But I might be a help. It wasn't for a woman's backside that I took this ordeal.
0: (laughs) And I'm sorry, I just... Oh, Cuckoo, and why? Because that's how he talks, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Then I'll hinder. When you're busiest in the fight, I'll come against you. I'll get under your feet in the sheep of an eel and trip you in the ford. I'll catch you and crack your
3: eel's ribs with my toes. And you'll carry that mark forever, unless I lift it from you with a blessing.
0: I'll come in the shape of a gray she-wolf to stampede the beasts in the fort against you.
3: Then I'll hurl a slingstone at you and burst the eye from your head, and you'll carry that mark forever unless I lift it from you
0: with a blessing. I'll come before you in the shape of a hornless red heifer and lead the cattle herd to trample you in the waters by ford and pool and you won't know me.
3: Then I'll hurl a stone at you and shatter your leg and you'll carry that mark forever unless I lift it from you with a blessing.
0: Then she left him.
2: After that, things started to go really, really wrong. Because you know what? You don't turn down the morgan without consequences.
0: Cucullin was fighting a warrior named Loch in a ford, and an eel tangled itself in his legs. Cucullin stomped on the eel and broke its ribs, but Loch got the chance to wound him terribly in the side. Then a she-wolf turned a herd of cattle to trample him in the ford, and Cucullin burst her eye with his slingstone. But the cattle churned up the water all around him so badly he couldn't tell if he was drowning, and he spotted the hornless red heifer and broke her legs with two well-aimed slingstones. The cattle trampled off, I guess except for the one with its legs broken. But the warrior Locke fought him fiercely and Cúchulain just barely managed to kill him. Exhausted and wounded, Cúchulain dragged himself out of the ford. It was there he saw an old woman with a busted eye broken legs, and a bloody head, milking a three-titted cow, and he knew immediately who she was. Cucullin asked her for a drink, and she gave him milk from the cow's first nipple. He wished her good health as he drank, and her eye healed itself before his eyes. She gave him milk from the cow's second nipple, and Cucullin blessed her and healed her head. Then he drank from the third nipple, and his third blessing healed the woman's legs. "'You said you would never heal me,' said the Morrigan. "'If I had known it was you, I never would have done it,' Cucullin said." From then on, the goddess of death followed Cuchulain closely. The Morrigan is actually a super interesting figure in Irish mythology. She's associated with war and death and prophecy, especially prophecy that has to do with death and doom. So you're sensing a theme here. Yes! I love her so much. Doom and death and doom! She's sometimes visually associated with crows, which makes sense because crows do show up to scavenge after a battle. I bet those ancient battlefields had a lot of crows and vultures on them. I bet it was like a really spooky environment. Yeah,
2: I bet anytime you saw like a large murder of crows, because that's what a group of crows is called, you would be like stay away from that area. Something bad must have happened there.
0: She's also sometimes depicted washing the blood-drenched clothes of those destined to die in battle so if you see the Morrigan washing your blood-stained shirt in a river, that is a sign that things are about to go really south for you personally. She and Vaka are sometimes believed to be the same goddess and she's also associated with banshees. Makes sense
2: because banshees are supposed to like cry out when is it the hour of your death or around when you're going to die or a loved one's going to die. You can hear their calls?
0: Yeah, it's a scream of impending doom, I think. I think so.
2: a 100% on Banshees.
0: So, the rules of honorable combat were starting to break down. Maeve asked for a truce and a meeting. Cuchulain granted it, and then she set up an ambush. He fought his way out of it, of course. Over and over, Maeve sent hundreds of men against him at once, abandoning the rules of honorable single combat, and he slew them all. Then she sent her daughter, Finnebear, promising him that he could have the girl if he would back off. A double cross was, of course, planned. Cuchulain cut Finnabair's hair and thrust a pillar stone under her clothes. And there's a whole thing about a dwarf who he wound up killing who was with her or something. It's a whole weird story. I don't really understand what's happening here, but she wasn't physically hurt except her hair was cut. Maeve's people retrieved her and no truces were offered or accepted after that. It was
2: night. Kukalan was snatching a few minutes of rest in the burned out glens on the smoking earth when a man approached. He was blonde and beautiful, wearing a bright silver brooch and a rich silk tunic. He carried a five-pointed spear and a forked javelin. And he came performing feats and displays of astonishing skill. But no one paid attention to him. It was as if no one could see him.
0: I just want to make a point. The five-pointed spear and the forked javelin, the Hochdorf chieftain from the last episode had like a three-pronged dagger like that. The handle looked like a trident. This is like a high-status object that's sometimes found in these ancient Gallic graves and also other Celtic graves. But And you see it show up here. So the man said, this is a manly stand, Cuchulain. It isn't very much. So self-deprecating, warp spasm voice. The stranger said his name was Luke, Cucullen's real dad. This is real dad. It was his real dad. It was his first time he saw his real papa. Real, such a real dad moment. I know.
2: He saw that Cacullin's wounds were heavy, and he promised to buy him the time to rest. For three days and three nights, Cacullin slept by a grave mound, and it was the first time he'd slept from Sawain when the summer goes to its rest until in bulk when the ewes are milked at spring's beginning. Quote, "...unless against his spear for an instant after the middle of the day, with head on fist and fist on spear, and the spear against his knee."
0: I just love that one quote because it's so realistic. I could just imagine any warrior in any army sleeping like that. So while Cuchulain was sleeping, the men of Ulster were still incapacitated with labor pains. It was down to Ulster's boy troop. They came streaming out of Avonvaca to defend their country, fighting heroically with toy javelins and shields and balls and hurly sticks. They managed to delay the Connaught host for three days before all but one was slaughtered. The boy troop, Jen! Boy troop! When Cucullin awoke and heard that the boys had died, he flew into a rage. It was his worst warp spasm yet, with his face deformed and his body twisted and a fiery cloud rising out of his skull. The monstrous Cucullin leaped into his chest chariot and rose up after Maeve's army. It was a great carnage.
2: he mowed down great ramparts of his enemy's corpses, circling completely around the armies three times, attacking them in hatred. They fell soul to soul and neck to headless neck. So dense was the destruction. He left a bed of them six deep in a great circuit, the souls of three to the necks of three in a ring around the camp this slaughter was given the name of the Sixfold slaughter. Cucullin slew an unaccountable horde of dogs and horses, women and children and rabble of all kinds. Not one man in three escaped without his thigh bone or head or eye being smashed or without some blemish for the rest of his life. And when the battle was over, Cucullin left without a scratch or a stain on himself, his charioteer or either of his horses.
0: You know what this reminds me of, Jen? The uh, previous episode, do you remember that archaeological site where it was like this sort of weird trench or area where there were all these bones of different people who'd been killed, like animals and people, and none of them had any heads. Mm-hmm. That's what this reminds me of. Go back and listen to that episode. Everything belongs to the brave. So Maeve started sending Cucullin's loved ones against him next. She sent Fergus, his foster father. He came unarmed. Cucullin said, You must
3: be under strong protection, Fergus, to come against me with no sword in your scabbard.
0: It would be all the same if I had a sword in it, Fergus said. I wouldn't use it on you. He asked Cuchulain to yield to him. Cuchulain said yes if Fergus would yield to him when he asked it. The men agreed and Fergus went home safely. Then Maeve sent for Ferdiad, who did not want to fight Cuchulain. Maeve sent bards and satirists to shame him for refusing. Shame, Ferdiad, shame! Still, Ferdiad refused. Finally, Finnebear got him drunk and seduced him in front of her parents. And that was apparently enough to do it. Maeve promised. Promised him Finnabare's hand if he would put Cucullin in the ground, and Ferdiad drunkenly agreed. Of all the warriors
2: in Maeve's army, Ferdiad was the closest to a match for Cucullan. He knew every move Cucullan knew, and he wore unbreakable armor. The two men met at a ford and started off the battle alternately, threatening to murder each other and begging the other to back down. Neither one wanted this fight, but neither one could turn away from it. Cucullan's homeland was at stake. For Ferdiad, what was at stake was his honor and position in society. And then, both of them utterly wrenched with grief and rage, they got to fight. Fighting. Their first moves were the feats Skatok had taught them: the apple feet, the thunder feet, the feats of the sword edge and the sloped shield, the feats of the javelin and rope, the salmon leap, the snapping mouth, and the hero's scream. Stepping on a lance in flight and straightening erect on its point but neither could beat the other.
0: They fought with spears, and they fought with swords. They fought on foot and from chariots. For two days, the battle raged, and at night, the two kissed and embraced and tended each other's wounds. Only on the last night did they not sleep by the same fire, because they both knew that one of them would not walk away the next day. When dawn came, they met at the river for the last time, and here's how it went. Quote, they fought together so closely that their heads touched at the top and their feet at the bottom and their hands in the middle around the edges and knobs of their shields. So, So closely they fought that their shields split and burst from rim to belly. So closely they fought that their spears bent and collapsed, worn out from the tips to the rivets. So closely they fought that their shield rims and sword hilts and spear shafts screamed like demons and devils and goblins of the glen and fiends of the air. So closely they fought that they drove the river off its course and out of its bed, leaving a dry space in the middle of the ford big enough for the last royal burial ground of a king or queen. Not a drop of water on it, except what the two heroes splashed there in their trampling. And
2: finally, Ferdiad struck Cucullin a terrible blow. Blood gushed into the water, Cucullin's warp spasm overcame him and his charioteer floated his secret weapon down the river toward him. The guy Bolga, Cucullin seized up his spear in his foot and hurled it at his friend and lover, killing him where he stood. Terribly wounded and overcome with grief, Cucullin carried Ferdiad out of the river and then fainted beside his body. And he would have just laid There, letting himself bleed out on the ground if his charioteer did not make him get up and escape. Only then, when Cucullin was near death and had killed the person in the army he cared the most about, did the men of Ulster rise from their labor pains to fight the last battle. Cucullin was so wounded that he sat most of it out. When he did rise again, it was only to confront his foster father Fergus at a strategic point in the battle, asking him to yield as he would promised. Fergus did, pulling his whole army out, leaving May Maeve's army exposed. With all her named heroes dead, Maeve didn't have the strength to keep standing alone against the full army of Ulster, so she had to retreat as well.
0: Maeve was guarding their retreat, fighting at a shield wall at the back of her army, when suddenly she got her period. She begged Fergus to take over command of the rear until she'd managed the situation, and the story says that her period blood dug, quote, three great channels in the ground. I guess she needed a heavy flow tampon. While she was dealing with her period, Kukulin broke through the shield wall, which was a really bad time. Kukulin, maybe try a different time. And had Maeve at his mercy. Finally, these two intractable enemies met face to face. Spare me, said Maeve. If
3: I killed you dead, it would only be right.
0: But he didn't kill her because Cucullin refused to kill women all of a sudden, which surprised everybody. That was how the cattle raid ended. Maeve had lost a lot, many of her sons, hundreds of great heroes, and her daughter Finnebear. Finnebear's story was particularly tragic because, desperate for allies, Maeve had promised the girl to just about everyone, right and left. Finally, Finnebear got to choose Rashad, a Kana warrior she'd loved for a long time from a distance. Rashad had switched sides to go fight for Cucullin when Finnebear mentioned to her mom that actually she could I kind of like this one. Maeve sent Finnebear to go have a tryst with him and persuade him to come back to their side.
2: Finnebear slept with Rishad the first time she actually had sex with one of these men. When the news hit the other surviving men she'd been promised to, they did not take it well. Seven kings of Munster had all been promised Finnebear as a wife if they joined Maeve's army. The men all compared notes and found out that she'd been promised to all of them. They turned against Maeve and Alo. A great battle was fought. Over 700 men died when Finnebear heard that all All these men had died on account of her, she died of shame. So that's how Maeve lost her daughter. She did, however, manage to get her hands on the bull she wanted. He took a mortal wound in battle with her husband's bull, who'd come with them in battle for no apparent reason, but he did. Her husband's bull also died of wounds it had sustained in the same battle. So in the end, neither one was richer than the other, which is the important thing, right guys? Cuckullen didn't die in the cattle raid of Cooley. When he did die, years later, due to some plotting by Maeve, he had himself tied to a standing stone, bleeding from mortal wounds so that he could continue to face his enemy on his feet. Only when the Morrigan perched on his shoulder did his enemies realize he was dead.
0: The cattle raid of Cooley might be a mythic tale, but at the core of it is something real, the way war debases people. As the meat grinder of this conflict churns on, both Cuchulain and Maeve stoop lower and lower. Maeve to trickery, Cuchulain to increasing brutality. The honor code breaks down. The hero is forced to turn his mythic strength against women, children, and people he loves in order to protect his homeland. Through Cuchulain's story, We learn more about the Celts of Northern Ireland, but we can also just maybe catch a glimpse of the Gauls. It's not just possible, it's likely, because so much of Cuchulain's story is corroborated in the archaeology of ancient Gaul and the accounts of ancient Greek and Roman writers. So, there's so much here, Jen. I mean, the headhunting. There's so much headhunting in Gallic archaeology and also in this story. Yeah, and the boasting and the storytelling... Yeah, the single combat and the
2: stratified warrior culture. The chariots and the swords and weaponry. And the gold and the bling. Oh, such magpie want. I know. And the giant
0: cauldrons filled with wine or mead and the drinking horns. Yeah, you saw that in the of Chieftain's Grave. And the hero's portion. The hero's portion is a big one. Um, I don't think there was a hero's portion in this section, but we told the story about the hero's portion in the last episode. And definitely the raiding. I mean, because the Cattle Raid of Cooley is just a cattle raid blown up to epic proportions, Kakulan's story paints a picture of a world ruled by violence. It was a place where cattle raids could take on mythic proportions, where wars were fought over petty slights and a rigid code of honor prevented anyone from backing down from a fight, even if they desperately wanted to. It was a world where the Morrigan stalked the battlefield, black-winged and terrifying, a world where women and girls were often treated as chattel, but some seized their own power and even became leaders. Whatever else you might say about them. These people were epic. Imagine proud warrior queens leading armies into battle, towering warriors with lime-stiffened hair coming home with their enemies' heads tied to their chariots. Imagine them challenging each other to single combat at the fords, fighting to the death over the hero's portion, and worshipping their gods in whispering oak groves led by the mystical druids. Imagine a society of valiant warrior poets, fierce fighting women and even children, prepared to defend their homes to the death with anything to hand, toy spears, and hurling sticks included. They existed. They were real. And it's this culture that Julius Caesar collided with headlong in 58 BC. We will tell you all about it in the next episode.
2: That's it for this week. We'll see you in two weeks. You can find us on social, on Twitter, at Ancient Hist Fan, on Facebook and Instagram, at Ancient History Fangirl.
0: We're also on Patreon. We talked about this in the beginning of the episode, but it doesn't hurt to mention it again. One of the rewards you get when you join our Patreon at every level is that we shout out your name in the episode. Yeah, we do. Just FYI, if you signed up for our Patreon and it takes months to hear your name shouted out in an episode, that's because we do these way ahead of time.
2: We do. We're recording this episode in January and it will not reach your eardrums until March if my maths are correct. It
0: might be April. We have one person to shout out, and it's Megan Fisher-Hulbert. Thank you so much for signing up to our Patreon, and welcome. Welcome. We really appreciate your
2: support, all of your messages, all of your financial support. It all helps us bring you this podcast, and it lets us tell the stories that we love telling. And we're so incredibly grateful that you guys love to hear these stories, too. Just makes it all worthwhile, doesn't it?
0: It sure does. Thank you guys so much, and we will see you in two weeks.
3: What I shall follow, I shall hunt.
0: Heroes and kings arise. Now is the time to yoke valiant horses to gleaming chariots, call your charioteers, take up your iron-tipped spears, Don your polished ring-mail, Gleaming steel in the red light of dawn. Raise to the sky your storied broadswords. Let the gods see how you shine. Now is the time for war. Arise
2: to me, the blood zealous. Remember the deeds of your forefathers. Ride into battle with a song on your lips. Call your enemy to single combat. Remind them of their greatest shame and the heroic deeds of your forefathers. Speak loud your poetry, my favored ones. Make the hills ring and the earth itself rise up and answer.
0: Arise to me, you druids. Recite the poetry that incites men to killing madness. Let the red mist roll over us all, coloring the dew on each blade of grass, overtaking friend and foe alike, until none can tell one from the other. This is the madness that feeds me the only thing that can make me happy. Follow me, named men.
2: Let your sword swing true, cleaving head from body. Let the heaps of mucka tower high. Let the blood soak the ground and turn the rivers crimson. Sing your paeans over the heads of your enemies. Tie them swinging to the necks of your horses.
0: My favored ones, I stalk the battle among you. You will know me as the scald crow, as the wolf of doom, as the red heifer who tramples the enemy's cows into the enemy's ford. I will find them and break their battalions, drive them all into the sea. Wherever I go, I bring chaos and cacophony, the shrieking of horses, the clashing of metal, the red rain of madness, the clenched fist of fear. Open your lungs and breathe it all in. Victory will be yours, my favored ones. Welcome to my battlefield. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Red-Haired Maka. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god, you so are the Red-Haired Maka. And this is Ancient History Fangirl.
2: (laughs) I take it back. I don't want to fuck with the Morrigan.
0: I wouldn't. No. So who is the Morrigan, Jen? Who is she? I don't think
2: I can answer that question. I think I need you to give me a deep dive on who she is, because from what I know from when you were doing the research on this episode, Blood, guts, war, chaos, lots of severed heads, all the severed heads, washing your entrails at the Ford. I mean, the Morgan is a goddess of war and chaos and so much more. And if you don't know about her, just strap in, get your favorite beverage, and here we
0: Go, tell us, Jenny. So the Morrigan is a Celtic goddess of war, but nothing about her is simple. She has many names and many faces. She shapeshifts. You may meet her on the battlefield as an old woman or a beautiful young maiden or an eel, cow, wolf, or crow. The Morrigan is all things at war with each other. Her names are multiple. Bive the Scald Crow, Red-Haired Maka, Nevin of the Battle Fury, Fea the Deathly, Benate the Woman of Battle, Danu, Mother of the Gods. This is far from a complete list, and all of these goddesses are sometimes referred to as aspects of the Morrigan, other times as separate goddesses. The Morrigan is said to be a triple goddess in at least two separate triplicates, Morrigan-Bive-Maka and morrigan nevin Fea. But first and foremost, the Morrigan was an Irish goddess. And to understand her, you have to understand the waters in which she swam. And those waters were epic. The waters were the ancient Irish battlefield, the chaos, the blood, the sex, the drama, the poetry, the severed heads, the cows, Jen, the cows. Cattle were very, very, very
2: important in ancient Ireland. The most prevalent form of armed conflict in ancient Ireland was the cattle raid. And this was so important to Irish warfare that stories of cattle raids have their own genre in Irish literature, the toine.
0: We did an episode about the cattle raid of Cooley, and throughout it, we called it the Tane, which is not the correct pronunciation as far as I can tell. And there will be a lot of instances of me and Jen attempting to pronounce things in Irish in this episode and possibly to middling success. We're doing our absolute best. Sometimes my dyslexia just gets the better of me. (laughs) Yeah, so we apologize to anybody who happens to speak Irish and knows that we are mispronouncing these words. We're probably going to mispronounce some words. All right. So in ancient
2: times, Irish Celtic society was one in which small but organized war bands would periodically attack neighboring communities for many reasons. To settle old scores, to get revenge for someone's death, because an old king died or a new king was just crowned. In revenge for a petty insult, to prove yourself in battle, or to assert dominance in your region. According to Angelique Epstein, author of War Goddess, the Morrigan and her Germano-Celtic counterparts, quote, It would be futile to attempt to assess the importance of the role played by cattle in Ireland without devoting considerable attention to cattle raiding. Indeed, a review of the numerous references to raids makes it plain that any kind of military action almost certainly involved an attempt by the aggressor to secure a prey of cows from the party attacked. And I just want to stop for a minute. Cows were so integral that they had both summer and winter pastures. And in the summer, men would go out with the cows to the summer pastures, which were much further away. You know, they might be two or three days ride away. And then during the winter, your men of your village would bring the cows home. And what I found interesting about this and why I wanted to bring it up is I suspect that summer was probably the raiding season because animals had more freedom in the winter. There would be a much closer eye kept on them because they'd be in the pastures nearer to home. You might have your animals in your house with you. So what you're telling me is that um, summertime is the raiding season. I just wanted to make the point that when cattle raiding was done, it was probably done away from your village. So The men would then have to come back into the village and be like, we got our cattle stolen. We need to avenge our cows and our honor. Honor was at
0: stake and cows. That's probably true, Jen. I mean, that's probably what the cycle might have looked like. Oh yeah, you'd go out, you'd find your new pastor, you'd be all ready to have a good kick-ass summer,
2: and then some asshole would steal a bunch and you'd be like, motherfucker.
0: Yeah, so (laughs) sometimes the act of raiding cattle actually played into the legal system because cattle in this world were a kind of currency. Epstein also tells us that in ancient and even medieval Ireland, if one party owed something to another party, the one who was owed could go impound the owing party's cattle to force him to participate in an arbitration process. And if he refused, he forfeited his cattle.
2: So what you're telling me is if I owe you money, then you could come into my field, see my favorite cow. You could put
0: an ancient world boot on it and take it away from me. I could boot your cattle. Right.
2: You're not allowed to boot my cattle.
0: The law says that I can just boot your cattle if I think you owe me something and you don't want to pay me, Jen. This is war. I am not going through arbitration. We are going to war. That is my favorite cow. She's got a boot on her now, and we're going to war. Unless you want to arbitrate. The time for talking was before you put a boot on my cow. And this is the cycle of violence that we're all stuck in now in ancient Ireland. So... Cattle were also given as tribute, kind of like a tax that a less powerful community would pay to a more powerful one as a sign of allegiance or submission. But those allegiances constantly shifted, and lower-ranked tribes would occasionally test their boundaries. If the stronger community felt the weaker one wasn't paying enough or wanted to exert control over their followers, they might lead a cattle raid against their own allies.
2: But perhaps the most common reason for leading a cattle raid was building your own prestige.
0: Honor! Honor was at stake!
2: Honor was to be had! That's right. Epstein also tells us of something called a king's raid, in which a recently elected king would lead a raid on his people's ancestral enemies to celebrate his kingship, demonstrate his qualification for the role, And build up his heroic legend. Epstein tells us that evidence of this tradition dates all the way back to 628 AD. In fact, Epstein cites the Fitness of Names, a medieval document citing the meanings and significance of various Irish names. Quote, this was the custom of the Ulster men. Each young man of theirs who first took up arms would enter the province of Connaught on a foray for cattle or to seek to slay a human being.
0: I mean, what does this remind you of, Jen? This is definitely the
2: cattle raid of Cooley.
0: Yeah, but I also think this reminds me of a really specific incident in the cattle raid of Cooley, which was the stories of Kukullin's coming of age and his boyhood feats. And you remember when he gets his first chariot from his uncle dad? Kuukalin just rides off into a neighboring community and kills a bunch of people. He does, he has their heads bouncing in his chariot as he's riding back, full warp spasm. Full warp spasm, has to be stopped by boobs. Somehow Cucullin is a complete hound dog who never saw a person he would not have sex with. Oh, that's not true. With one very specific exception, which we're getting to. Anyway, he had to be stopped by boobs because he was really scared of boobs. Re-listen to Hound of Ulster if you missed it. It's awesome and it's hilarious. But anyway, this was a thing actual people did, according to this quote, spreading out and killing some people to prove your manhood.
2: But do we know that it was a tried and true way to get them to stop by just taking your top off? The end of this story is just like a line of women take their tops off and Kukulun's like, I stop now?
0: I suspect that that part of the story was Kukulun specific. And to be honest, I don't know how often this happened as opposed to how much people thought it should happen as this sort of heroic tradition. Epstein also quotes an earlier document, which was written in 1695, that details a practice that people still did only 60 years earlier. Quote, Every heir or young chieftain of a tribe was obliged in honor to give a public specimen of his valor before he was owned and declared governor or leader of his people. The chieftain was usually attended with a retinue of young men of quality who had not beforehand given any proof of their valor. It was usual for the captain to lead them, to make a desperate incursion upon some neighbor or other that they were in feud with, and they were obliged to bring by open force the cattle they found in the lands they attacked, or to die in the attempt. So, they're just going out and booting other people's cattle... Outside of the law. Look, they are the law. Right, there's no other law here, let's be real. It's just the man with the cattle boot makes the rules. Might makes right, you know. Once they'd successfully done this, the new chieftain was deemed a worthy leader and everyone would follow him without question.
2: So that's one element of war among the ancient Irish. Small groups of people raiding cattle for their own particular prestige and to assert dominance over their neighbors. But what was it like to go on a cattle raid? One thing we can assume is that it was very, very noisy. Lots of Roman chroniclers give us great sensory details about what Celtic war was like. Here's Polybius writing in the 100s BC. There were countless trumpeters and hornblowers, and since the whole army was shouting its war cries at the same time, there was such a confused sound that the noise seemed to come not only from the trumpeters and the soldiers, but also from the countryside which was joining in the echo.
0: And here's Livy describing Celtic warriors around 27 to 9 BC. Quote, Their tall stature, their long red hair, their huge shields, their extraordinarily long swords, still more, their songs as they enter into battle, their war whoops and dances, and the horrible clash of arms as they shake their shields in the way their fathers did before them. All these things are intended to terrify and appall. Song and
2: poetry was a big part of Celtic battle, and this is a quote from Diodorus Siculus. When a man accepts the challenge to battle, they then break forth into a song in praise of the valiant deeds of their ancestors and in boast of their own high achievements, reviling all the while and belittling their opponent and trying, in a word, by such talk to strip him of his bold spirit before combat. When their enemies fall, they cut off their heads and fasten them about the necks of their horses, and turning over to their attendants the arms of their opponents, all covered with blood, they carry them off as booty, singing a paean over them and striking up a song of victory.
0: The ancient Celtic battlefield was a place of cacophony and poetry, where war hosts shouted and yelled, banged sword against shield to terrify their enemies and raised such a racket that it seemed the very hills themselves were rising in revolt. Brave warriors entered into single combat singing songs that praised their many illustrious ancestors and belittled the enemy. When a Celt won a battle, he severed his enemy's head and raised it to the sky with songs and shouts of victory. War poems, by the way, were often composed by bards, which was a type of druid in the ancient world. They were written to spur the brave warrior into battle and to incite a battle frenzy. This genre of poem has survived in both Scotland and Ireland. In Scotland, I'm going to mispronounce this, but I believe it's pronounced something like a brusnakad or incitement to battle, was written as late as 1411, while in Ireland the genre is called a Ruscad. So I'm not sure exactly how closely I followed the structural traditions of a Ruscod or a brusnakad, but I tried to write a battle poem for the beginning of this episode.
2: Yeah, which was so, so, so cool. Like one of my favorite things that we do in our podcast is we've got those cold opens. They're polarizing. Some of you love them, some of you hate them. We're not going to stop doing them.
0: If you love the cold opens, then you're in the right place. If you don't, skip over it. It's fine. And a lot of times we don't know what the
2: cold open to each episode will be until after we have our rehearsal. Yes, we actually rehearse this podcast, believe it or not. And when we finished our rehearsal, the only thing that we could both think was, We need a Battlefield poem, and Jenny really delivered.
0: Thanks, Jen. I'm glad you liked it. There was a lot of severed heads in it, which of course is, you know, I always think there should be more severed heads. I'm always on the team, like, could we have a few less severed heads? And
2: Jenny's like, but is it even an episode if we haven't severed a head?
0: If there's no severed heads in this episode, are we even podcasting? Mm -hmm. Anyway, the Rosgad, the Irish version of this Morrigan battle poem, is actually a broader category of unrhymed verse in Old Irish. Not all Rosgada are war poetry, but many are, and some of them are credited to the Morrigan herself.
2: Epstein's article describes the setting under which one of these poems would traditionally have been performed. And this is a quote from an older document from about 1695. Quote, before they engaged the enemy in battle, the chief druid harangued the army to excite their courage. He was placed on an eminence from whence he addressed himself to all of them standing about him, putting them in mind of what great things were performed by the valor of their ancestors, raised their hopes with the noble rewards of honor and victory, and dispelled their fears by all the topics that natural courage could suggest. After this harangue, The army gave a general shout, and then charged the enemy stoutly.
0: So imagine a battlefield of terrifying music, of poetic cacophony, where brave warriors were incited to battle by recitations of martial poetry. This was the Morrigans' battlefield. It's the
2: contrast between how the Romans went to war versus how the Celts and Gauls went to war. Like the Roman way of battle, like no one was standing there shaking their shields. Everyone was these tight formed lines. These were all men who had spent years building up this brotherhood of like being able to ride a horse across your shields to protect your fellow soldiers.
0: Nobody is supposed to stand out. You're not supposed to be the highest shield in the Testudo because that wrecks the stability of the whole formation. Like you are supposed to stay in your line, stay in your place, support your brothers and operate as one. I see it as like the complete polar opposite.
2: There's no heroic, as in a capital H, individual tradition. There's lots of heroism, but it's not a heroism based on one man and his ancestors and his legend. It's actually much more based on one unit. And I think the other thing to really remember about the Romans at war is every single person on that battlefield, from the people blowing the war horns to the people holding the golden eagle standards, had a real purpose. Those eagle standards were so important because that's how you found your way back to your legion. Every horn, every cry meant something different. And now you've got the Celts coming at you and they are all shouting and crying and telling you their ancient stories and their whole backstory. Yeah, that noise and cacao cacophony is so destabilizing to people who use every single aspect of their noise that they produce on the battlefield. They all meant something different. They meant this legion attack, that legion advance, this one fall back. Now you're surrounded by people who are just clashing their shields and shouting and singing
0: poetry at you. And you're like, and playing, you know, their own horns, which means something totally different. These descriptions of the Celtic battlefield come from Romans to whom this would have been a very chaotic clash. But it might have been that every sound played through a Carnix had a meaning. And the Romans just didn't understand it, but they experienced it all as this terrifying cacophony. Oh, yeah. Anyway, so the Morrigan was a goddess of war. Her holy place was the point of a sword, but she wasn't necessarily a goddess who fought with a sword. And she wasn't necessarily a strategy god like Athena, although there are instances where she is kind of strategic. We're going to get to that, too. Instead, she was believed to embody the chaotic qualities of war, confusion, cacophony, and battle poetry. She incited men to battle by reciting ferocious martial poetry.
2: So many myths associate her with cattle and the stealing of cattle, and she is also strongly associated with horses, Jenny's favorite. Cucullin's horse, Leith Maka, or the Grey of Maka, was said to be the king of horses, and he belonged to the Morrigan. The Morrigan is also associated with crows, which will absolutely eat your eyeballs if you're dead, and which must have been ubiquitous on ancient Irish battlefields because they eat carrion.
0: Yeah, and I think that there's a real logic to some of the animals that the Morrigan is associated with because these are animals that you might see after a battle on a battlefield eating all the dead things
2: crows and like creatures that eat carrion they love to eat the juicy bits first particularly the eyeballs and like anything else that's exterior and might be juicy this is kind of gruesome and awful
0: welcome to this episode <laughs> Welcome to ancient Ireland. The
2: situation is not ideal.
0: I've written an entire poem about severed heads for the intro. So the Morgan's
2: cries were said to spread chaos, panic, and confusion on the battlefield, and to cause men to go mad and kill indiscriminately, even those on their own side. She is a prophet of war. She predicts who will live and who will die. If you spot her washing bloody clothes at a Ford, look and see if the clothes she's washing are yours. If they are, this does not bode well for you. I'm just going to tell you this right now, Jenny. I'm not looking.
0: It's not just your clothes. It could be your stuff, your chariot, your armor, your weapons, your own severed body parts, your bits.
2: I don't want to know. I don't want to know.
0: You didn't see it. It never happened, Jen.
2: It's going to be my shiny, shiny necklace. We know this, number one. Number two, if we don't look, then I don't know what happened and I can go into war like a true raging Thracian war elephant. It's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I just wanted to stop for a minute because in this sort of like description, the Morgan reminds me a lot of the Greek goddess Eris. He's the goddess of chaos and who also walks the battlefield. And what she does is sort of just stir up wildness.
0: Yeah, and she's also very closely tied to the Banshee. And the story that I picked out to tell about the Banshee in the Halloween episode could have easily been a Morrigan story. So let's talk about the deepest origins of the Morrigan and when we first find mention of her. I mean, realistically, the Morrigan was a much older goddess than when she shows up in writing. There's no way to trace that because it's all an oral tradition that isn't well recorded. But the first mentions we have of the Morrigan are in glosses, that is, notes in the margins of handwritten books written by Christian monks. One example can be found in a copy of the book of Isaiah, which is part of the Old Testament found in both the Bible and the Torah, dating from around 876 AD. In it, the Hebrew word lilith has been translated to the Greek word lamia, In the margin of the book, someone has noted that Lamia means a monster in female form, that is, a Morrigan. Can we just stop for a minute and
2: just break this down? Because like the source we're getting this from is so Christian and the word Lilith and then Lamia and then Morrigan are all really charged. So Lilith was, I think, Adam's original wife in some of the ancient Judeo-Christian mythology. And Adam divorced her and she went on to become the mother of demons and monsters, right? She treated up. She definitely treated up. Okay, now let's let's talk about the Lamia for a minute. The Lamia, there's a lot of myths. I'm just going to give you one. She was a vampiric, demonic monster who fed on the blood of young children.
0: No, she fed on the blood of young men at the crossroads, didn't she? The Lamia probably
2: did that as well. But essentially, there's one myth where she's like a head demonist monster and then there's others where like, you could become a Lamia who was someone who fed on the blood of young children or hot guys at the crossroads.
0: The Lamia was the one who was half snake. Am I wrong about that? Yes, she was definitely half snake. We talk about the Lamia actually in a lot more depth in our oldest original vampires episode. Yeah, which is called ancient vampires. They only knock once. But anyway, let's just break that
2: down. So Lilith and the Lamia are both demonesses. They're both these really reviled and demonized female creatures. And now you've got the Morrigan. And literally you have a Christian monk telling you that the Irish Celtic war goddess, the Morrigan, is the same as these two.
0: These are women who are beyond the bounds of the patriarchy. Lilith got out of the whole patriarchal Adam and Eve paradigm. The Lamia devours young men and the Morrigan is absolutely beyond the patriarchy. She's the one who makes sure your war is successful or doesn't if you tick her off.
2: Sure. And I also think the really important thing about the demon side of it to me, is that the people who are crafting the narrative right now are the Christians, and the Christians would have seen these older pagan goddesses and pagan deities to be demonic because they were not Christian. By aligning the Morgan with a big bad from Judeo-Christian mythology and also from Greek mythology, we're saying that this older Celtic goddess is a big bad, as opposed to being a really complicated person who's been worshipped and who has a place in the history and mythology of the Irish culture.
0: I think the thing that I see here is the demonization of women who are outside of men's control. Because Lilith and the Lamia are both outside of men's control, and so is the Morrigan, really. Well, the Morrigan has no time for any of your shit. Well, absolutely. So, that's not the only margin note, by the way, that mentions the Morrigan. There are lots of others, mostly dating from around the same time period, referring to the Morrigan in association with female demons, hooded crows, ravens, cattle stealing and the instigation of battle, horses lying wolves and demons of the air told you see what they're trying to do there i know have you noticed the theme here other names and phrases associated with the morrigan appear in the margins as well some very colorful for instance the heap of maca is a pile of severed heads which i just love that this was maybe like a euphemism everybody knew because there were so many severed heads and maca's acorn crop is another euphemism for severed heads so now we have two
2: Remember, acorns, mostly associated with druids. Just getting that dig in there, druids definitely like those severed heads.
0: Druids and severed heads go together like peanut butter and jelly.
2: They go together like wine and cheese. <laughs> so one of the earliest myths that incorporates the Morrigan is the cattle raid of Cooley from the Hound of Ulster. The hero of this tale is Chulainn, a sort of half-god, half-human with magical powers, who is the only person who can defend his homeland against the invading army of Connaught. And that's because every other male in connaught pissed off the goddess Maka, a.k.a. the Morrigan in her human incarnation. And she cursed all the men in Ulster with birth pangs whenever their homeland is most threatened. Except
0: Cuchulain because he's half god, so he's immune. They were basically suffering labor pain. Like, they're in labor. And there's a whole long story which we tell in The
2: Hound of Ulster. So one day, while wandering the war-torn landscape of his homeland, a young, beautiful woman approached Cucullin. And she declared that she loved him and she propositioned him for sex. And Cucullin was like, nah, this is way too serious for me.
0: We just met literally just now and I'm also kind
2: of busy. I'm also kind of busy. I've got to defend my entire homeland because all the other men here are literally in labor. So I don't really have time to like just get with you.
0: This is a bad choice, Cucullin. You have not chosen wisely. Yes.
2: And so this beautiful young woman was like, oh, you have no idea what you just did, Buster. You do even know who I am. Cucullin's like, well, obviously not. But also I'm so busy. I don't have time for your nonsense. And so she's like, all right, well, I'm going to give you the good threats. And she says, I'll be the eel that trips you in the ford. I'll be the gray she-wolf who tramples the cows in your direction. All will be the hornless red heifer who leads the cows to trample you in the waters. Now, Jenny, all of these animals seem very associated to a particular goddess. I just can't think who it is. Hmm. A cow,
0: an eel, a wolf. The eel is kind of a weird one. I mean. Did Cucullin Just Turn Down the Morgan? Did the big bear piss in the woods, Jen?
2: Oh boy, listen, Cucullin, you have not seen a person, place, or thing that you've turned down before. Why are you turning down someone who literally has the power to, like, influence whether you win
0: or lose a battle? Can we get Cucullin's side on this? Cucullin, what do you have to say for yourself? Consent
3: works both ways, Jenny. It was an unequal power dynamic. And also, Cucullin was tired. Cucullin need nap.
0: Yeah, you know, Cucullin has a point. Consent is important. The Morrigan is not honoring his consent here. Not and also she's definitely
2: a goddess and she has the power to coerce him into doing something.
0: Right, it's an imbalance of power, totally improper. Now I'm on Cucullin's side. Yeah, I think in this instance, like I don't know
2: why he turned her down, but he does have a right to and not be threatened by a goddess.
0: Right, but you know it's the ancient world and everybody sucks. So, <laughs> so all of this stuff that the Morrigan threatened came true. Cucullin did a lot of fighting in rivers, and this was a deliberate strategy because there was this tradition of challenging heroes to single combat at a ford, which was a river crossing. And it was really actually pretty clever. Cúculin was using this warrior culture tradition against the opposing army by appearing at all these fords in the army's path and challenging all of their named heroes to single combat, which of course took a long time. And this slowed the army down and bought his own people time to recover from their burthen pangs. And, um also killed off a bunch of their best men in the process. So it was it was like a pretty smart strategy, Kukulin. way to go. Kukulin sometimes have
3: good ideas, not just pretty face sharp sword.
0: <laughs> so, um, anyway, the next time Kukulin was fighting a single combat battle at a ford, an eel did trip him in the water. A she-wolf did trample some cows and a red heifer... Did lead those cows straight toward Cucullin's ford, which really screwed up his battle. Cucullin managed to injure all these animals, breaking the eel's ribs, bursting the she-wolf's eye, and breaking the heifer's leg, as he ritually promised during the earlier conversation when he turned down the woman for sex, who happened to be the Morrigan. And he won his battle, but only at great personal cost and injury to himself. Everything went wrong for him in that battle as it never had before.
2: What's so fascinating to me is the juxtaposition of, like, this is a female goddess who's asking a male for sex, he's being turned down, whereas, like, in Greco-Roman mythology, we don't see that very often. Yeah, that's very true. So after his battle, Cullen dragged his sorry ass out of the river, only to see an old woman with a busted eye, a broken leg, and a bleeding head, milking a cow. Cúchulain immediately realized who she was, the Morgan, goddess of the battlefield, and healed her wounds, saying he would never have wounded her if he'd known who she was. From then on, though, the goddess of war and death dogged Cúchulain's steps, and she shows up again in the story of Cúchulain's death. <laughs>
0: The story of Cucullin's death is kind of complicated, but the gist of it is that Queen Maeve, the leader of the armies of Connaught, which was um, Ulster's sworn enemy, conspired with some of Cucullin's enemies to draw him out where he could be killed by magically convincing him that his homeland was once again under threat. It wasn't, but he was kind of having these magical hallucinations here that Queen Maeve was sending against him. Cucullin's friends and family tried to keep him from going out and doing battle, both by pleading with him and by various magical means to hold him back, but none of it worked. As he drove his chariot out to battle, Cucullin caught sight of an old woman washing clothes in the river. As he passed, he realized that she was washing his armor and that this was a sign that he would die that day. But of course, being Cucullin, he pulled a gen and just said, nope, don't look, won't look, didn't see that, and drove on. Can't look, won't look. <laughs> I mean, most people, when they meet the Morrigan washing their shit at the Ford, they stop and they have a conversation.
2: Um, that's why most people wind up dead.
0: That's, that's right. I think this is the first time I've seen someone not have a conversation with a Morrigan about whose shit she is actually washing at the Ford. Well,
2: I think to be fair, Cullinan is like, oh, you have literally been stalking me all the time. Oh, there's an old woman washing shit at the Ford. It's definitely mine. Just don't engage. She's not going to stop until I'm dead. So I guess it's time. It's the final countdown.
0: So then he came upon a group of three grizzled, hideous old women roasting meat by the side of the road, and this was the triplicate Morrigan in disguise. The women offered him some of their meat, which, it turns out, was dog meat.
2: So Cucullin, the Hound of Ulster, was under some magical prohibitions called gisa,
0: which in Celtic legend
2: you were never allowed to break. One of his gisa was that he was never supposed to eat dog meat— And breaking that magical prohibition would spiritually and physically weaken you. But there was also a general overarching Giza in Ireland about never turning down hospitality. So Cacullin was caught between two conflicting geese. It's a catch-22. He's damned if he does, damned if he doesn't.
0: Yeah, it's kind of like, you know, your family really expects you to clean your plate. You go home to visit your mom. She gives you this giant heaping plate of pork chops or something you are expected to eat it and tell her she's such a great cook and give her a big hug and love her so much because she cooked for you but you're vegetarian or
2: you come home and your mom's like "Mm, putting on a little weight there also here's a giant heaping plate of food that i've made for you and if you don't eat it all i will be offended
0: she's also gonna kind of judge you for eating it is that the is is that the thing (laughs) yeah she's just gonna be like
2: Maybe don't eat it all, but also eat it all. And you're just like, oh my God, stop. Oh God, that's awful. So at first, Colin tried to turn down the dog meat, but the women insulted and derided him. What? You're too good for our poor hospitality? We don't have much to give, but we can give you this and you're turning us down? Used to just eating fancy
0: food in your fancy castles, are you? Look, you're used to eating your fancy feast in your fancy, fancy castles feast. with your fancy cats. <laughs> you're just gonna turn down our fancy feast, are ya? Huh? You're too good for our fancy feast? <laughs>
2: <laughs> you don't want our fancy feast? Anyway, so this seriously challenged Q Cullen's personal honor as a warrior to imply that he thought he was above other people. And so the just, in general, badgering and belligerence got so intense that Caculin broke down and chose to break his personal giza and eat the dog meat, accepting the three women's hospitality. But here's the thing. Eating that dog meat weakened him severely, so that all the strength drained out of his left side, and so that on his left side, he was no stronger than a mortal man. Cacullin, this is not good. And... This was Cuchulain's punishment for rejecting the Morgans' favor on the battlefield all those years ago. Or for, you know, having agency and saying, I don't want to have sex with you right now.
0: This is problematic for sure. She's not a feminist icon. So anyway, Cuchulain rode on toward his doom. He met three men on the road, sons of Catalan, who was a man he'd killed in battle. This is Cuchulain's own bloodthirstiness catching up to him here. And prior to this, a prophecy had stated that the first three spears Cuchulain threw in this battle would kill three kings. And these guys knew about that prophecy. They wanted to use it to their advantage. They were also accompanied, by the way, by a guy named Logad, who was also the son of somebody that Kukulin had killed in battle. So there were four people waiting for Chulainn in this battle. So the first son of Catalan asked for a spear, and he threatened to satirize Chulainn or write a very cutting poem about him if he didn't provide one. Let nobody say that I am not a generous person said Cucullin, and flung a spear straight at the first son of Catalan's head, killing him instantly. But Lugad pulled the spear out of this first son's head and threw it back at Cucullin. It missed, but killed Cucullin's charioteer, the king of charioteers. See what they did there? See that? So the second son of Catalan then demanded a spear of Cucullin. I have no idea why he did this, because he just watched his brother get killed by a spear in the head. I
2: bet there was some prophecy that they knew that they had to be killed by Cucullin so that Cucullin could finally die menace that he was.
0: I know. I was like, otherwise, I'm like, how did Lugard persuade these three guys to go along with this? He's just standing behind this line of dudes. (laughs) (laughs) So the second son of Catalan then demanded a spear of Cucullin, threatening to write very mean things about all of Ulster if he didn't.
3: Never let it be said that Ulster will lose its honor because of its champion,
0: said Kukulin.
3: (laughs) It's just his, like,
2: deep voice, and you're like, (laughs) said (laughs) Kukulun.
0: Look, Kukulun is always in warp spasm mode. I don't even know what he sounds like when he's not warp spasming. He likes the warp spasm. He does. It's, you know, it's fun for him to warp spasm.
2: It's his natural state, really.
0: Anyway, so Kukulun... Again, threw a spear, killing the second son of Catalan instantly, which should have surprised nobody. Then Logad, who was just conveniently standing behind these dudes, pulled the spear out of the guy's guts and threw it at Cucullin, missing him, but killing his horse, Liathmaca, the king of horses. The third son of Catalan demanded a spear of Cucullin, even though he'd just seen his two brothers die. He still thought that this was somehow going to turn out differently for him. Threatening to write extremely mean Twitter posts about Cullin's whole family if he refused. He was just going to incite a total tweet storm.
3: Never let it be said that I brought dishonor on my family, especially on Twitter,
0: said Cullin. And once again, he threw a spear, killing the man. But Logad pulled the spear out of the still twitching, steaming body and hurled it right back at Cullin. It didn't miss this time. It hit Cullin in the stomach, spilling out his guts. So... Cucullin was just lying there in the road, next to the body of his horse and his charioteer, his intestines spilling out in ribbons in the dirt. He didn't want to die like a dog in the road. He wanted to die on his feet like a warrior. So he dragged himself to a lake and drank. The water made him feel slightly better, but not a lot better.
2: Yeah, I mean, his guts are just spilling out everywhere.
0: Yeah, and then he pulled his mortally wounded body to a standing stone and tied himself to it with his own intestines. That's some real hardcore metal shit, Kukulin.
3: Kukulin wants to die with honor and dignity.
0: You're doing that, buddy. Good job.
3: Kukulin is the kind of hero they write songs and toys about when he's gone. That's why I'm talking to you today.
0: <laughs> and that's why Kukulin is here today, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> In my
3: warp spasm voice.
0: Well, Cucullin, I'm sorry to go into such a deeply personal and upsetting part of your life, but the audience wants to hear about it, so.
3: It's cool. Cucullin and the Morgan meet up in the afterlife.
0: Oh, that's awesome. I'm glad you guys are friends now. Why not? Live and let die. Cucullin, <laughs> why
2: are you talking in Bond film titles?
0: Are you hanging out with
2: Julius Caesar and poaching off his HBO?
3: No, Julius Caesar poaches off of your HBO. <laughs> <laughs> Which I
2: also poach off of. <laughs>
0: that's all right they took my disney plus it's fine (laughs) anyway so as he tied himself up a raven flew over and tripped over his intestine and this made cacullen laugh and he died laughing isn't that nice that's kind of a nice way to go out it's a real heartwarming story (laughs) That you tell by fire. (laughs) Do you remember that time Cucullin died laughing? Oh, you don't. Right. Let me tell you. (laughs) Nobody really believed that this was the end of Cucullin. His enemies refused to approach his body for three days, thinking for sure that this had to be a trick. The minute one of them got near, he was going to leap out and stab them. But at the end of those three days, the Morrigan, in the shape of a raven, landed on his shoulder and perched there, and Cucullin did not move. And that was how his enemies knew that he was dead. The end. The Morgan often
2: brings news of doom. She overlaps strongly with the stories of the Banshee. She is often described as a washer at the ford, predicting someone's death if they continue on the road they're on. So there's an example of this in the Hostel of Dachaka, which isn't part of the Ulster Cycle, but it's got some characters in common. It's the story of the death of the son of concavor a king who broke so many of his Gisa.
0: So many Ghisas being broken.
2: So like we talked about before, there might be culturally accepted Gisa. Everyone in a Celtic culture had to follow, like the one about never refusing hospitality. And individuals might have their own specific Gisa. For example, Chulainn had that one about not eating the dog meat. In many Celtic myths, heroes are challenged when two or more of their Gisa come into conflict, like we saw with the death of Chulainn In the Hostel of Dachaca. The king in question, Cormac, spots a red woman washing something at the river. And this is always a terrible sign because, you know, if they're red, it probably means bad because, you know, everyone has to make red bad. Stop villainizing us gingers. Anyway. It didn't say she was redheaded. It just said she was red. Just as red. But then
0: that goes into gingers. And then that goes into us having no souls and being vampires. Well, you don't have a soul. I mean, that's a scientifically proven fact. (laughs) We don't discriminate on this podcast against the non-sold. We have a non-sold person as a co-host. It's fine. We have two non-sold people as co-hosts. I mean, realistically, I clearly have no soul either, just based on the shit that
2: I say. So anyway, Cormac draws closer and sees that the red woman is washing a chariot and is cushion and harness. And when she lowers her hand to touch the water, the entire river turns red with blood and gore. Quote, Most horrible is what the woman does, says Cormac. Let one of you go and ask her what she is doing. Then someone goes and asked her what she did. And then, standing on one foot and with one eye closed, she chanted to him, saying, I wash the harness of a king who will perish. Cormac realized that the harness she was washing was his own.
0: I mean, that's always how these conversations go. I think that the Jen strategy of just don't ask, don't tell, is probably better
2: I grew up with a lot of different Irish, Scottish cultural fairy tales. And it's like, if you ever meet the Morrigan or any of the Tuatha de Danann or any of these fair folks, just, just don't. Just don't engage. You cannot outsmart them. You cannot outbargain them. You cannot outdo anything. The conversation is going to go south really quick. Some of that is because the people who were telling these stories later on were Christians who were really making it so that you didn't really want to engage with these with other people because they would win and you were not smart enough and that's a whole other rabbit hole we could go down. But the lesson I've learned, don't engage.
0: <laughs> yeah. So then there's another story about a hostel, which is called the destruction of Da Dergda's hostel. So this story is found in the same place we find the oldest version of the cattle raid of Cooley in the Book of the Dun Cow. It's a frightening and haunting tale in which another king, Connor, breaks a number of his own geese's or has other people break them or is placed in an impossible position where he has to break them in quick succession. And he has a lot of very complicated geese's. He's a king and a lot of his geese's have to do more with what other people do around him than what he does, so it's a little bit hard to control whether he breaks that geisa or not. Anyway, so Jen, the list of geese's is kind of cool, so I thought maybe we could read them together. I am so excited. Let's read them. Okay, you go first. Thou shalt not go
2: right hand wise round Tara and left hand wise round Breccia. The evil beasts of Kerna must not be hunted by thee. And thou shalt not go out every ninth night beyond Tara.
0: Thou shalt not sleep in a house from which firelight is manifest outside after sunset and in which light is manifest from without. And three reds shall not go before thee to Red's house. And no rapine shall be wrought in thy reign. And after
2: sunset, a company of one woman or one man shall not enter the house in which thou art.
0: And thou shalt not settle the quarrel of thy two thralls.
2: So I want to just stop for a minute, Jenny, because what we just read here is super fascinating Giza-wise, but also tells us a lot about the people who were writing down the story. Probably Christian monks. So let's talk about this left-hand-wise, right-hand-wise. Left, left was always seen as sinister, as the wrong way. It's always associated with evil and the devil. And so to me, as soon as I
0: saw that, I was like, wow, your Christian monk is showing here. In Christianity, there was a certain demonization of left-handed people. Absolutely
2: up until very, very recently. So I want to talk also, there's another one that just jumped out to me and it was this one. Thou shalt not sleep in a house from which firelight is manifest outside after sunset and in which light is manifest from without.
0: What does that mean? Does that mean that you can't sleep in a house in which someone is burning a fire outside? At night. So what it means is you can't sleep in a house
2: where someone lit the fire at night, maybe a giant bonfire for a festival like sowing or Beltane and brought the fire inside to your house. Now this is super important because as we talked about in our Halloween episode this year, I explained the festival of Sowing. It was this big communal festival where you would douse your fire. And then you would go out to the fire festival outside and you'd bring your torch and you would light it from the communal fire and bring it back inside to your house. And you would relight your hearth fire from the communal pagan fire outside.
0: Yeah, so this would have been seen as a pagan ritual by Christian monks. So what they're essentially saying is you can't go into a pagan house or you can't sleep in a pagan house.
2: I mean, essentially, essentially what it's saying is that as the king of these people, you're not allowed to stay in the house ever associate with anyone who lights their fire from the communal bonfire, which in ancient Ireland would have been everyone. This is what they believed you would not be able to go into a house that didn't live that way unless you were going into a Christian house.
0: I'm seeing a conflict here between Christianity and the old ways, because this would have been written down during a period when Christianity is is taking hold, but there are still a lot of people who practice these older traditions. So what I'm seeing here is a demand that Connor the king side with the Christians in that conflict.
2: Absolutely. And to me, that's so important because once again, your Christian monk is showing, but also Culturally and historically, you actually get to see that conflict written into the mythology. And the consequences
0: for Connor are really dire. Mm -hmm. And that's really interesting if you know what to look for. So the important Gisa for the story and what happens next is the second to last one, which is after sunset, a company of one woman or one man shall not enter the house in which thou art. So guess what happens? One of these gisas is that no rapine shall be wrought in thy reign, so no one will rape anyone in your reign, in your kingdom, which is a good gisa. We should have that gisa everywhere. I feel like that is a gisa that everyone should be compelled to follow. Everyone should be behind that Giza, correct? Well, guess what? That was not happening. There were a whole bunch of raiders breaking that particular Giza right and left. So Connor was riding around in his reign, I guess trying to put a stop to this. So for various reasons, Connor is traveling around in his realm and he has to take shelter at his pal Da Durgda's place. And that's where we are now. So here's what
2: happened, and this is after many, many, many of Connor's other Giza have been broken, and his kingdom is just really going to shit, and there might be monsters all around, with a lot of raiders and bandits just in general wreaking havoc and chaos. So remember, one of Connor's Giza is that after sunset, a single man or a single woman cannot enter any house he's in. So several of his Giza have to do with things that other people do and not what he does, which takes a lot of power away from him.
0: So quote, when they were there, when Connor and his friends were at the hostel, they saw a lone woman coming to the door of the hostel after sunset and seeking to be let in. Oh boy, this is trouble. As long as a weaver's beam was each of her two shins. I love these descriptions. And they were as dark as the back of a stag beetle. A grayish, woolly mantle she wore. Her lower hair used to reach as far as her knee. Her lips were on one side of her head. She's a very unusual-looking person. She came and put one of her shoulders against the doorpost of the house, casting the evil eye on the king and the youths who surrounded him in the hostel. He himself addressed her from within. So Jen's gonna read Connor's part here, and I will read the woman's part.
2: "'Well, O woman, if thou art a wizard, what seest thou for us?'
0: Truly I see for thee, she answers, that neither fell nor flesh of thine shall escape from the place in which thou hast come, save what birds will bear away in their claws.
2: It was not an evil omen we foreboded, O woman.
0: It is not thou
2: that always augurs for us. What is thy name, O woman? Cale, she
0: answers. That is not much of a name. Lo, many are my names besides. Which be they? Easy to say. So then the woman chants a long list of names, all of them and this should shock nobody, associated with the Morrigan, while standing on one foot and holding up one hand and breathing one breath. She sang all that to them from the door of the house. And I just think it's really interesting, this sort of ritual um, posture while reciting these things. You see it in Dachoka's Hostel too. Yeah, I was just thinking that as well. Yeah, it's really just interesting how that repeats. I swear by
2: the gods whom I adore that I will call thee by none of these names, whether I shall be here a long or a short time. What dost thou desire? So he's basically saying, what do you want? Come on. What do you want? I'm not going to call you by all these names. Like,
0: why are you trying to get into my house after dark? I have this rule. All my other rules are broken. You're really going to get me in trouble here. What do you want? This is the last one I've got. If you break this
2: one too, then the Morgan's going to come for me. Wait a minute.
0: Wait a second. (laughs) (laughs) That which thou too, desirest, she answered. She's not going away. She's just stalling for time here. Tis a gisa of mine to receive the company
2: of one woman after sunset.
0: Go back and get me a friend. Though it might be a gisa, I will not go until my guesting come at once this very night.
2: Tell her, he says to his servant, that an ox and a bacon pig shall be taken out to her and my leavings, provided that she stays tonight in some other place. Dude's going to send you a bacon pig. Bacon pig. I hope it's just like a pig made of bacon.
0: That's the picture I have right now. It's a whole pig made of bacon. I mean, it's not. It's just
2: obviously a very big pig.
0: It's a bacon pig, Jen. Exactly as it says on the tin, a pig made of bacon. Just don't ruin my fantasy that this exists. (laughs) Can you imagine the BLT you could make out of that? Anyway, so (laughs) she's not having the bacon pig. Maybe she's vegetarian. I don't know. Maybe, fair enough. He doesn't even ask her
2: what her food preferences are. That's rude. I mean, it's the leavings that bother me. It's like, why would I want the stuff you didn't eat off your table?
0: I mean, to be fair, it might be a thing where kings have so much more food produced than they possibly need. Like, you remember Mark Antony had like seven boars cooked for every dinner. They probably gave that food that wasn't eaten to people who worked in the house or like it might not have been just the literal scraps off of my plate it might have been just like the food we wound up not having to use. I know what it means
2: is you can have the food for my table that because they overproduced food for me but it's just the idea of saying my leavings. The stuff I don't want. Just stop with the ox and the bacon pig,
0: Right just stop there and it won't be offensive. Maybe throw in a gold crown and you got it. But she's not having any of this. She replies if in ensu- it has befallen the king not to have room in his house for the meal and bed of a solitary woman. They will be gotten apart from him, from someone possessing generosity, if the hospitality of the prince in the hostel has departed.
2: Savage is the answer. Let her in, though it be a geese of mine.
0: She got to him. That was savage. That was such a burn. (laughs) It was such a dig. It's like, well, if the prince in the hostel doesn't have room for one single solitary woman and just one meal for one night, I'll make sure everyone knows about it.
2: That's a real dig to his honor. It's such a dig to his honor. And he's like, well... I've broken every other geese, I might as well break this one, because that is savage, and so he lets her in. And when he does, everyone inside that house starts to feel this, like, horrible sense of foreboding.
0: It should shock nobody that the woman in question is the Morrigan. She refused the bacon pig, and also she predicts Connor's doom. She says, quote, Neither fell nor flesh of thine shall escape from the place into which thou hast come, save what birds will bear away in their claws. She's like, you're not getting out of this house, except the little pieces of you that birds carry off when we're done with you. That is chilling. It's absolutely chilling. So that's how the Morrigan predicts your doom.
2: Morgan is often depicted as being one of the Tuatha de Danann. This translates as the people of the goddess Danu. They're generally described as a supernatural race of people in Irish mythology, sometimes like fae or fairies, but definitely not like a Tinkerbell fairy. They're full-size magical people with terrifying powers who like to just fuck shit up. They're said to live in a kind of underworld where the time passes differently. And there are entrances to this underworld under Neolithic grave mounds and passage tombs. And what we find so fascinating about this is that Neolithic monuments would have predated the Irish Iron Age by thousands of years. And also you see these very similar monuments across many Celtic countries in addition to ancient Ireland.
0: They're all throughout Europe and it's really fascinating. So essentially, all of these Neolithic monuments
2: predate the Celtic people and the Celtic people sort of bring these Neolithic monuments into their living mythology and history and culture.
0: Yeah, and that's really fascinating. I mean, we don't know how much continuity there was culturally between Neolithic monuments and Celtic cultures, which it's hard to say when Celtic culture began or even what it is. And we have other episodes that talk about that in more detail. But those might have been entirely different people, or they might have been people with entirely different beliefs, or they might have been the same people with different beliefs, or they There might have been colonization. We just don't know. We don't know because it wasn't written down and because it
2: goes back so far and because of the amount of people who have come in, interacted and influenced the cultures later on.
0: Yeah. So what you're seeing here when you see things like the Tuatidanaan and um, the Morrigan and the Banshee are also associated with these, by this time they're calling them fairy mounds, these Neolithic monuments. It's really just incorporating an older landscape of a different mythological tradition into their tradition, which is, I find, really interesting. So, stories about the Tuatha Dé were first written down by Christian monks in roughly the thousands AD thereabouts. The monks often depicted them as heroes and kings from a mythological time with supernatural powers, but many folklorists believe that the Tuatha Dé Danann were actually older, pre-Christian gods with a Christian gloss put over them. The Tuatha Dé Danann may also represent ancient, heavily mythologized traces of the ancient Druids. It's said in the mythology that they had skills in various branches of knowledge such as prophecy, history, magic, music, war, and language, among other things, like the Druids did.
2: So a kind of origin story of how the Tuatha Dé Dan came to Ireland is told in the Book of Invasions. This is a book that purports to tell the history of Ireland from the dawn of time to the present day, which would have really what we're talking about here is the early medieval era.
0: Yeah, and it's also not necessarily like a factual history, but a mythological history, like the Trojan War or something like that. Or like the history Augusta, right? I mean the <laughs> amount of times I cite the Historia Augusta like it's a real source, not gonna mention that. It's fine. It's fine. I mean I do it as well. But anyway. <laughs> we're both guilty there. It's like the Aeneid. <laughs> it's like the Aeneid, exactly. I feel a little
2: called out right now. <laughs> So the history of the Book of Invasions is actually really interesting. So a summarized and abridged version was assembled in the 1100s by our friends, the Christian monks, and it may in fact be based on an earlier, more detailed version that was destroyed in a Viking raid.
0: Anyway, this history of Ireland is, like we said, large, largely mythological, and it tells the story of how the Tuatha Dé came to Ireland and fought for their place there. The Morrigan plays a big role in this story, and she was one of the Tuatha Dé in this story. And it's here we get to see how she operates in battle. So. If Of course, I had to tell you all about it and put it in this episode. So the Book of Invasions tells the story of Ireland in several waves of invasions and colonization. The part of the story that we're concerned with starts with a people called the Children of Neved, who flee Ireland because they're being oppressed by another group of people, the Fomorians. So
2: the Children of Neved fled to Greece, and they're oppressed there too because the world is awful.
0: Turns out, people are awful everywhere.
2: So after many generations, their descendants, a people now called the Firbolik, return to Ireland. They live there for about 30 years before another group of people, the Tuatha de Danann, also descended to the children of Nived, arrive in Ireland as well. And before the Tuatha de Danann arrive, the Firbolik king, Iochet, dreamed of a great flock of blackbirds rising up from the ocean to descend on his island, bringing confusion and chaos. And when he woke, he asked his court wizard to interpret the dream. And the wizard had a warning. Invaders were coming from across the sea.
0: And soon Eoched found it to be true. The Danann arrived on Irish shores and burned their ships behind them, just like in the Iliad. Yeah, they did. They were not going home. They had committed to this path. They were tall and beautiful and skilled in every art known to man. They were good at everything. It was just obnoxious. They met with the Fear Bullig, their two ambassador poet warriors heavily armed and eyeing each other from behind great shields. They both recounted their lineage and mutual kin down to the great, 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 greats and found that they were in fact related. They were both children of Neved. They even spoke the same language. But even so, the Tuatha de demanded either war or half of Ireland. The Bolg chose war. The Morrigan had come to Ireland with the Tuatha de and this was music to her ears, she was the first to launch a preemptive strike. Before the hosts had even gathered for battle, the triplicate goddess, depicted here as three women, Bive, Macha, and Moragu, went to the knoll of the taking of hostages and the hill of summoning of hosts and rained down showers of magic and mists and a deadly rain of fire and red blood upon the heads of the Bullock warriors. Their deadly onslaught continued for three days and three nights, allowing the Bullock no sleep. The Bullig were humiliated that their own wizards could not muster up a defense against this deadly shower. It was embarrassing.
2: So then once again, the Tuwa de Danan offered peace if the Bullock would only only surrender half of Ireland.
0: Look, just half of
2: your country, all right? They're not asking for much, just half. And once again, the Firbolig refused, telling the ambassador poet druids that they would not surrender until doomsday, even though they had little hope of winning. One of their poets looked upon the assembled Tuat de Danon, hosts in despair, saying, The Red Vive will thank them for the battle combats I look on. And once again, it was war. The triplica goddess, Baiv Maka and Moragu Accompanying the tuath into battle.
0: For four bloody days, the battle raged. Here's what it sounded like. Quote, The furies and monsters and hags of doom cried aloud so that their voices were heard in the rocks and waterfalls and in the hollows of the earth. It was like the fearful, agonizing cry on the last dreadful day when the human race will part from all in this world. The triplicate goddess, the Morrigan, fixed pillars into the earth behind her own army so that none could flee the battlefield until the stones themselves could flee. Terrible wounds were inflicted on both sides. Many heroes fell with ghastly injuries. The ground was made spongy with blood. The Firbolag Fort was called the Fort of the Packs after the packs of dogs seen preying on corpses left behind from the gory battle, and the Fort of the Blood Pools, from the red pools of gore all around the fort. The Tuadadan king, Nuada, lost his hand in the battle. Eventually, the Tua de Denon won, but at great cost. They made
2: their peace with the Firbolag, offering them the choice of any province in Ireland for their own. The Firbolag chose Connacht, and the Tua de Denon got to keep the rest of Ireland. So here you can see the Morgan aggressively instigating war, launching the first attack, and also walking with her people on the battlefield and preventing even her own side from fleeing. It's also clear she has power over the elements and the ability to sow chaos.
0: But wait! There's another battle. The Second Battle of Mag Tured, and I know I'm mispronouncing that, took place years later between the Tuatha de Danann and another people living in Ireland called the Fomorians. The backstory on this one is that the Tuatha de Danann king, Nuada had to step down as king because of the wound he got in the first battle. He'd lost his hand and no man with a physical blemish could stay king. So Bres, a guy who was half Tuatha de Danann and half Fomorian, assumed the throne. Bres was a tyrant, forcing the great Danann heroes into manual labor. Even the great Dagda, a general and hero from the last battle, was forced to dig ditches around bress's fort.
2: The Dagda is an interesting person in Irish mythology, a male fertility god associated with strength and manliness. He was also a druid, with strong magical skills and dominion over life and death, agriculture, weather, the seasons, and time itself— and Brez had him digging ditches. So the Dogda and other Tuatha de united to restore Nuada to his kingship. But Brez refused to step down. So the Tuatha de heroes plotted together to overthrow him for good. And in the midst of all these preparations at Sawain, the Dogda went for a walk and came upon a woman at a river. She was standing with one leg planted on one bank of the river and the other leg planted on the other bank. And she was washing her hair in the water in nine loose tresses. And the woman propositioned the dogda for sex because mama needs her biscuit. And the dogda said, you, you're literally straddling a river.
0: You are clearly my flavor. Let us get down and do this. Yes! So the two lay down together and had
2: wild, passionate river sex. That's right. In the ford! In the ford. And ever afterward, the place where they had done the deed was called the bed of the couple. So after... The deed was done. The dog did discover that the woman he had
0: lain with was none other than the Morrigan. So, two times in the mythology, we see the Morrigan propositioning someone for sex. One time he says no, and things do not go so well for him. We admit that that is problematic. The other time he says yes, and here's how it turns out. The Morrigan gave the dog the valuable intelligence about the coming war. She told him where the Fomorian army would land and ordered him to summon his war hosts at one particular place and meet her at a certain ford. Also, she promised to go find the king of the Fomorians and drain his blood and rip out his kidneys. Listen,
2: the doctor, like, first off, let's just be honest. He had a lot of special powers there. I mean, you could slow down time. I bet she had a good time with him.
0: I bet he's like, babe, I know what you need and I can provide it. Oh, yeah. And she's like, not only will I not predict your doom, <laughs> but I will personally go and rip the kidneys out of your enemy. <laughs> when you rock her world,
2: if you give her the good vibrations...
0: If you give her the good vibration, she will meet you at the ford with two handfuls of blood from your enemy dripping from her hands, which is what she did on the day of the battle. That's so hardcore. I just love it. The tua de armies
2: gathered, led by the god Luch, who was also Cucullin's dad and kind of a show-off. So Luch looked over his assembled allies and one by one asked them what they brought to the battlefield. And they all offered something. The smith offered an endless supply of deadly weapons. The physician pledged to heal everyone except the decapitated, or those whose spinal marrow or brain was severed. I mean, I can't make zombies is what he's saying. And the druids pledged to rain fire on everyone. The cupbearer swore to make everyone thirsty and deprive them of water. And you, Morrigan? Liu said. What power do you offer? Not hard to say, she said. What I shall
0: follow, I shall hunt the battle raged ferociously and the Morrigan stalked the battlefield inciting chaos with her war poetry. Here's a quote from the retelling in the Morrigan by Courtney Weber. Quote, Kings arise to meet the battle. Cheeks will be, s- cheeks, cheeks will be seized. Honors declared. Flesh shall be decimated. Faces flayed. Ramparts will be sought and feasts given. Battles are observed. Poems are recited in their honor. Druids are celebrated. Circuits are made. Bodies are recorded, metals are cut, teeth mark, necks break, A 100 cuts blossom, screams are heard, battalions are broken, hosts give battle, ships are steered, weapons protect, Noses are severed. I see all who were born in the blood-zealous, vigorous battle, raging on the battlefield with blade scabbards. The enemy attempts our defeat over our own great torrents. Against your attack on the full complement of the Fomorians, in the mossy margins, the helpful raven drives strife to our hardy host. Mustered, we prepare ourselves to destroy. In the face of the attack inspired by the Morrigans' fierce poetry,
2: the line of the Fomorian war host broke and were overwhelmed and driven into the sea. Once again, the Tuatha de Danann won their battle. It was the Morrigan who brought the news of her people's great victory to everyone throughout Ireland, prophesying peace and prosperity to the Irish people, followed by a prophecy of the end of the world.
0: It was a real bummer, and the Morrigan just could not, because she's the doomsayer, she just cannot resist saying a little doom.
2: And I'm going to warn you, the first time I read this, because it's been 2020, I was like, I need to stop. This is a very doom and gloom prophecy I'm going to read.
0: And I'm also going to preface this by saying that we are recording this prior to the uh, November election in the U.S., and it's going to drop afterwards, so we're not really sure how that's going to turn out. All right, channeling the Morgan. I shall not see
2: a world that will be dear to me, summer without flowers, kind will be without milk, women without modesty, men without valor, captures without a king. Woods without mast, sea without produce, wrong judgments of old men, false precedents of lawyers, every man a betrayer, every boy a reaver. Son will enter his father's bed, father will enter his son's bed, every one will be his brother's brother in law, an evil time. Son will deceive his father, daughter will deceive her mother.
0: She gets into the weeds about the father's entering the son's bed and then the son's entering the father's bed. And there's there's a whole lot of incest. But the false precedents of lawyers and the wrong judgments of old men, I mean, that and, and the sea without produce. And it's like bringing up all of my Supreme Court and climate change anxieties here. So,
2: yeah, I mean, as if 2020 wasn't dark enough, we have this prophecy from the Morgan. Definitely sounds like the Christian monks are showing here when she gets really into the weeds about the incest.
0: yeah. So I really just wanted the audience to have that feeling of meeting the Morrigan on the road and having her doomsay you. So I just wanted to give that to you all. That is my gift. There you go. And like I said, we don't know at this point of recording this episode prior to the November U.S. election.
2: Prior to Brexit over here.
0: But I think we're going to drop them after both of those things, right? Or at least after the election.
2: Definitely after the election. Probably after we're supposed to Brexit. So that doomsday prophecy ended the second battle of Mag and admittedly the place where it ends may be in the middle of the story as part of the manuscript was lost. So here we see the Morrigan acting once again as an inciter of battle, exhorting her people to fight on. It's only when she starts to speak her poem on the battlefield that the Tuatha de Nan are able to drive their enemy into the sea. After he accepts her proposition, she tells the Dagda important intelligence and brings him handfuls of his enemy's blood. And it's the Morrigan who ends the story with a prophecy, both good news and bad.
0: This goddess stands on a through line that can be traced directly from magical doomsayers of Celtic mythology like the Banshee, magical women of Welsh mythology slain by a more masculine, quote-unquote, civilizing force, to the last days of the Druids, left to predict ruin and desolation amidst the ashes of their homeland, all the way back to that beach at Anglesey, to the wild-haired, black-clad women in the ranks of Druids with their torches and imprecations. The Romans never invaded Ireland, but when you look at the Morrigan through this lens, you can see yet another remnant distorted and changed through time of an ancient genocide. You can catch a glimpse of the last druid women, their hair wild and their cheeks ravaged by time and grief and hunger, hurling prophecies of doom at the backs of Roman soldiers. Do we know that this connection is real, for sure? No, but it's intriguing to think that the Morrigan shares the same roots as the nine sisters of Welsh myth we saw appearing in the Mabinogion, who kept getting murdered in tales of Arthurian legend. Except this time, the woman in question is more than a druidess with ancient powers who falls prey to a quote-unquote civilizing force. This time, she's a goddess of war, and she's the one doing the praying.
2: So, on that cheery note, that's it for this week. We'll be back in two weeks, and in the meantime, check us out on social at Ancient Hist Fan on Twitter, and at Ancient History Fangirl on Facebook and Instagram.
0: I mean, when do we ever end on a cheery note?
2: Oh, I'm sorry. I ended a Spartacus episode with Spartacus in the Italian countryside, just being free. I feel like that's as cheery as we might ever get.
0: Yeah, but the thing is, we all know how that story ends. So really, I would say that's the least cheery of the cheery endings. It just builds us up to suffer more. I ended one episode happily. That you know you're just going to break our heart with later. Jen is really good at weaponizing happy endings. I'll learn from the best. i learned from watching you. So if you'd like to get ad-free episodes and extra episodes because you're just a masochist, check out our Patreon. So we have some Patreon members to thank, don't we, Jen? We do. And remember, we disclaim that we will probably mispronounce your name. We cannot pronounce words. Thank you. Sierra Markham, James Perea, Wayne Peterson, Justine, Emily W., Juliana Longo, Ryan Karen, Hannah Shea, Christine Schmidt, Bailey Peters, Kim Sturge, Magdalena Cross, Manuel Rivas, Kelsey Krebs, Lauren Shirley, Reese Bateman Beeler, Katie Littleton, Jasmine Chen, Anna Corbin, and Robin Rosh, thank you to everybody who supported us and who continues to support us and make this podcast possible. We could not do it without you. show your work. I'm going to show you my work so hard. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. So Jen, what the hell are we doing? What are we doing right now? Okay, I'm going to tell you what we're going to do. We've had a
2: long, dark season in Roman Britain. It's been so dark. It's been a lot of genocide. So much genocide. So much horror and death. Which has been really depressing. And that's how a lot of history is. And so what happened was Jenny came across one small thing in her PICS research. And I was like, I know exactly what you're talking about. It's this. We got into like a four day. It was weeks. Four day, four week text fight about the central question that this episode is going to center around. We're going to fight over what is the Pictish Beast?
0: What is it? What is it? What is it, Jen? (laughs) We both have such strong opinions on this and we both just kind of argued about it. We have been talking about this for a really long time, and it's just gotten more and more and more elaborate.
2: Yeah, and at first we were like, maybe it'll be a minisode, and I was like, no, this is a full episode. This is the full episode that everyone who has survived 2020 and the first few months of 2021 need. This is going to be some much-needed relief. I hope.
0: (laughs) Just a little bit of levity in the sea of genocide that we've plunged you all into.
2: Yeah, and it's April Fool's, so we encourage you to kick back and enjoy as we dive into some very spurious theories.
0: This is all going to be extremely spurious. Our tinfoil hats are firmly on over our heads. I can't even see out my eyeballs right now. Acknowledging that there may be some listeners who did not listen to the episode that we dropped immediately prior to this about the Picts, I'm just going to give you a tiny, tiny dollop of background on the Picts, just a, just a scotch. So, the Picts were a people living in ancient Scotland from around the early 300s to the 900s AD. They first appeared in the historical record as the Roman Empire was starting to collapse, losing its hold in the British Isles. So early on, the Romans and later early Anglo-Saxon and British monks described them as raiders and pirates, pillaging Romano-British communities to the south.
2: Later on, the Picts established their own embattled kingdoms in northernmost Scotland, holding on for 600 years while fighting off challenges from all sides, the Anglo-Saxons, the Dalriata, Vikings, and others. Eventually, they were Christianized, And most likely assimilated into other cultures after several disastrous battles wiped out their entire ruling and warrior class.
0: Sorry, we just took a dark
2: turn. But here's the thing, Jenny. Before they left, the Picts carved some spectacular things into standing stones.
0: Right, so we're going to focus on the happy stuff about what they carved into standing stones. We're not focusing on the sad stuff.
2: Yeah, the mysteries of what they carved.
0: That's right. So the
2: Pictish stones are mysterious, untranslated carved stones, like nothing else in the British Isles. There are lots of symbols on these stones that repeat over and over again, and we have no idea what they mean. There are people and animals on the stones, and one of them is the mysterious Pictish Beast.
0: The Pictish Beast is a mystery wrapped in an enigma, wrapped in bacon fat not bacon fat. Bacon is fat. Wrapped in a rasher of crispy cooked bacon. Bacon pig. Is it a bacon pig? I don't know. We didn't take that tack, but I could see someone making that argument. I'm sorry you didn't take that
2: argument. You fell down once again. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> once again, Jenny, you failed miserably. Oh God, I feel like Julia Caesar is trying to go through me.
0: <laughs> Asshole. All right. <laughs> so the Pictish Beast it is a mystery. What is it? We don't know. Nobody knows what it is. We don't know what it is. It's not any known animal, but it must have been really important to the pigs because over 40% of animals carved into their stones are in fact a Pictish Beast. It's on all the stones practically except the really Christian ones. Damn those Christian stones! This is the class three stones. No <laughs> Pictish Beast on the class three stones. No. Only Jesus.
2: Look, St. Columba had
0: been there. He he vanquished it. It's done. (laughs) Look, St. Columba has absolutely no sense of personal space whatsoever. We've established that. He also has no time for sea monsters. Absolutely no time. So what does the Pictish Beast look like? So we're going to describe it, and we're also going to provide you with ample pictures of it all over our social media and in our show notes. So if you don't know what this is, go look at it and then come back to us because this episode will not make any sense if you don't know what the Pictish Beast looks like. And even if you do, it may not make any sense. So
2: yeah, we're talking about a very visual thing in an audio mode of, uh, of uh, entertainment.
0: Highly recommend that you look at the picture of the Pictish Beast as you listen to this podcast episode and puzzle along with us. So what does it look like? It's got a long, narrow snout that could be said to look like an elephant's trunk or maybe a bobble dolphin's nose. It's got some kind of thing blowing back behind it that's attached to its head that I've heard described as like a mane or a blowhole or a spout of water or we don't know, something. It's got front and back feet that kind of point backwards as if it's swimming in water. That is a key detail. And it's got a little curly tail, like a bacon pig.
2: We've gotten into lots of arguments about what this animal is text fight. It's literally going all night. My husband actually turned the sound off and put a do not disturb on my phone because we would not stop fighting. He had to take my phone away from me.
0: <laughs> Jenna's texted me at like four in the morning my time to tell me what she thinks about the Pictish Beast. Which is a reasonable time for me to be awake, but not for you to be awake. It's really like a St. Columba level overstep, Jen.
1: <laughs> As
2: I said, at one point in time, Glenn took the phone, put it on do not disturb and put it in a drawer and was like, we're done with this. <laughs> So, we decided that we would take this fight to you. Yes, the listener. Yeah, our listeners. And we'll have a poll, and you guys can vote on what you think. And you can see who you agree with more. I mean, obviously, it's going to be me, because Jenny's argument is ridiculous.
0: Oh, oh! (laughs) Yours is extremely spurious and just completely wrong. But we are going to, both of us, make our case, and you, the listener, get to decide who had the stronger case. Okay, so who's going first? I believe Jenny's going to go first because her argument is
2: more factual and mine is more ridiculous. Thank you, Jen, for admitting that mine is more factual. (laughs) It is. That doesn't mean mine isn't right. (laughs) We're just going to go ahead and say that it's
0: more right because it's more factual.
2: No, 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 no. Nobody said it was more right. It just is more factual. It's more based in fact. Mine is more based in, as the listener would expect, mythology and cryptozoology. It's fine. Spurious flights of fancy, actually. (laughs) They know what they're
0: getting with me. It's going to be a mythology, cryptozoology. All right. Well, mine is extremely tenuous history, so I'm just going to go there. So, I think that the Pictish Beast is an elephant. And I know what you're going to say. Here's what I'm going to say. Show your work. I'm going to show you my work so hard. I think it looks like an elephant with my eyeballs when I look at it more than it looks like anything else. That's what I think. I just, that's what I think when I look at it. I think elephant. I think you have elephants
2: on your brain. I think you're wrong.
0: No, no. What I actually think is that it looks like an elephant drawn by someone who had in fact never seen an elephant. And I'm going to explain how that could have possibly happened in the history. I realized that, you know, elephants are not native to Scotland. There were no elephants up there indigenously, as far as I know, except... There is some small, very small, very slim, but intriguing chance that somebody up there may have seen an elephant and told everyone about it. And then they they drew pictures of it.
2: Okay, so what you're suggesting is your entire argument is based on an ancient world game of telephone.
0: That's accurate. Yeah. This,
2: guys, this is the most factual of the two arguments.
0: Okay, let me just get to my argument. So the question is, where would the pics have seen an elephant? That's the question we have to ask. And that's the question that I am going to answer.
2: You better, because right now you're circling around a D minus.
0: The case for this is quite spurious. However, there are in fact two documented times when elephants were brought to the British Isles and the first time, Jen, the first time was in fact Julius Caesar. Oh. I know Julius Caesar needs to have his own podcast.
3: Oh, it's going to be about Julius Caesar. Oh.
0: Let me tell you about that time. I know I've mentioned this before, but I'm going to tell you about it like you've never heard it before. Okay. The first time we have documented evidence of elephants coming to the British Isles that I know of was when Julius Caesar came to the British Isles. And this was on his second trip in 54 BC. Caesar had already been once and basically been driven off, although he likes to describe it as some kind of a victory, but he was running away. Let's be real. The next time he came back with 800 ships specially designed to handle the difficult channel waters, and at least one of those ships contained at least one very irate single mom elephant. That's what we know from the history.
2: Look, we have posited that. We know it's true. It was possibly me in a previous life.
0: She's not a single mom in this life, but in that life, she was an
2: elephant single mom. It explains a lot. (laughs) When we talked about the single mom elephant, we talked about her because... We felt like Julius Caesar stole this mother's baby and this mother and put her into freaking bondage. And that's why she's so angry.
0: Wow. Just taking a dark turn there again. This is supposed to be the fun episode. Well, I just
2: feel like people are going to be like, why do you keep calling it a single mom elephant? Like, there's no baby. Why are you calling it that?
0: Which has absolutely no basis in fact or history. We made it up, you guys. It's our fan fiction. Number one, nobody knows that it was female. In fact, that's extremely unlikely because most war elephants were male. However, they were like part of Jugurtha's untrained. Like they had to like rustle up a bunch of African elephants super quickly and they weren't that well-trained and that's why they lost the battle and this was Caesar's herd. So I I think she had not received the, the full-on training of a war elephant. What the hell are we saying? I don't know. She's gonna need more wine soon. <laughs> <laughs> Julius Caesar pushed his way through hostile territory to wind up on the bank of the River Thames with a very hostile, very angry, name-calling, shit-talking army of chariot warriors waiting for him on the other side, just waiting for him to try crossing. Just try it, Caesar, just try it. The river before him was booby-trapped with sharpened stakes just beneath the surface, not too fun to walk on. It was then that Julius Caesar brought out his one lone single mom war elephant. He brought out this one single, extremely irate, undertrained. Single mom, war elephant, not her fault she was undertrained. It was a situation. She was real pissed. She was real drunk on human gall. Oh, God, all the time. You'd have to, just to get through the day. Just to get through the day with
2: Julius Caesar and his ego.
0: This is why we drink. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so she stood on the banks and glared at the opposite side and frightened the chariot warriors so much that they all ran away. And Julius Caesar's army was left across the river unimpeded, Minding the stakes, of course, because elephants have very sensitive feet. So, the next time elephants appeared in the British Isles was under the reign of Claudius. And this was about 90 years later, in 43 AD, when Claudius sent his general, Plautius, to conquer Britain for good. And, once again, everything went down on the River Thames, where Plautius deployed his Batavian aquatic German dressage warriors to fight amidst the mud flats and the quicksand. Winning a harrowing victory and driving the freedom fighter Karatukas out of his own territory.
2: That story is definitely in a Patreon episode and not in our main feed.
0: I believe it's in the Druid's Last Stand Anglesey episode and it's in a lot more depth in the Sigburn Karatukas episode, which is on our Patreon. So after that happened, as soon as it was good and safe, Claudius came up to Britain with a company of war elephants Unfurled a mission accomplished banner, posed for pictures, and then went home because he was not that good at the war making, really. All he wanted to do was stand under the banner.
2: Look, he learned something from like his great uncle Augustus. Like, not everyone is meant to be doing the war. So if you can outsource that to people who are good at it and then just rock up and take the credit, it works out better in the long run.
0: Know your strengths and outsource the other shit. That's a leadership strategy. Anyway, so these two instances of war elephants in Roman Britain took place about a century apart and hundreds of miles south of the Picts' traditional territory. And also, the Picts were not known as a people then. like They had not been identified by the Romans writing things down in history as the Picts. Doesn't mean that the people who made up the Picts did not exist. They just weren't called that, or maybe they were kind of in different tribal territories and had not unified into the group that became the picks yet
2: exactly like we don't know what they were called at that point in time because they didn't cross paths yet with Roman chroniclers, and their history was written on the Pictish stones, which we can't decipher. So we don't know exactly what they called themselves or how long they had been called that. And because of this, we're assuming a few things that if we had written history, we wouldn't have to. In particular, if we had written history by them and not the colonizers, we really wouldn't have to.
0: So if you want a deeper dive into who the Picts were and their history, we talked about that in the previous episode. So these two instances took place about a century apart and hundreds of miles south of the Picts' traditional territory. So how likely was it that the Picts saw or even heard of elephants from these events? Again, not very. I'm, I'm going to be honest here. This is very spurious. But there is a small possibility here. From the earliest invasion of Britain and prior, the ancient Romans were aware of areas as far north as the Orkney Islands, north of you know, mainland Scotland. And the Orkneys were believed to be very linked to the Picts. Some considered them an eighth Pictish kingdom. The Romans called the Orkney Islands, quote, the Orcades. And the word orc, by the way, is thought to be a Pictish word that means young pig or young boar. Bet you didn't know that. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. So ancient writings suggest that people as far north as the Orkneys were aware of what was going on down south as well. It's said that before he left, Claudius received tribute and allegiance from 11 kings, including a king of the Orcades, or a king of the Orkney Islands. And some sources going back as early as the 4th century AD list the Orkneys as a Romano-British province, although nobody believes that the Romans had any kind of serious presence there. Historians in more recent times generally didn't believe this account, that Claudius really did get some tribute from a king of the Orkneys. However, evidence from a place called the Brock of Gurness opens up the door of possibility. So the Brock of Gurness is located in the northern coast of mainland Orkney Island. It's a Brock village, and the Brocks were these really unique hollow-walled towers, some as high as 10 meters high, that were centers of Iron Age Scottish power. These were really ancient Iron Age Scottish communities. It's entirely likely, well, I don't know if it's entirely likely, it's possible that a king in the Orkneys, powerful enough to treat with Claudius all the way down south, could have lived in a brock community. At the brock of Gurness, there have been several pieces of Roman amphoras discovered that predate 60 AD, implying possibly a connection to Rome that predated Agricola's conquest of Britain. This is a little spurious, but it's possible. At Mine Howe, another Iron Age site about 20 miles southeast of the brock, Roman artifacts have been found, jewelry, glass, pottery, medical implements, and even weapons and armor, some of which date to the first half of the first century AD, possibly right around Claudius' time. It's a little hard to date these things really accurately, but it's possible. So these artifacts have made some historians... Believe that there may have been a king of the Orkneys who may have had contact with Claudius around the time of his invasion, maybe, and that it's possible, it's feasible that a king of the Orkneys did indeed ratify some treaty that Claudius signed and maybe got some loot for it. I don't know.
2: Okay, this is just sounding again like the most tinfoil theory I have ever heard, and if I'm gonna keep listening to it, I'm gonna to need to get more wine.
0: Jen's rolling her eyeballs constantly as I talk, which I don't blame you. This is a tad spurious. I'm not gonna lie. Pretty much. <laughs> Wait till we get to Jen's argument if you want to hear spurious.
2: Look, St. Columba's on my side, but but listen. In order to have this conversation, I don't know that that's a good thing. <laughs> it's documented. In order to have this conversation, <laughs> I had to go inside and open up the emergency prosecco that we had left over from Christmas because. I spent all of Christmas with shingles and couldn't drink anything. She was pouring the Prosecco
0: directly on her shingles, which is why it lasted so long. (laughs) I was not. She kept feeding the beast. Anyway, so... This is horrifying. What am I saying? We keep taking a dark turn. Anyway, so
2: all I was saying is I had leftover Prosecco, which I decided to break out for this episode.
0: Jen had like a, you know, like a little glass case that said, you know, in emergency, break glass. With like a magnum in there. <laughs> so like, I was trying to get through this argument.
2: Yeah, well, it's a stupid argument.
0: I was trying to get through my extremely intelligent graduate level thesis about what the Pictish beast is. So anyway, excuse me, my God. Now I have the hiccups. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so like I said, this is, you know, it's a little spurious. I think it's quite founded in in research. In fact, personally, the archaeology is quite robust. However, I can understand how some of you might completely doubt what I am telling you. So still, it implies, this is what I think that it implies, okay? It implies that maybe, just maybe, there's a teensy little chance that people in the Orgneys were aware of what was going on down south. They had connections with the southern tribes of Britain during the time of Claudius. Perhaps some warriors from the Orgneys were even there at these pivotal, very early battles because they were allies and they sent some people to help out fighting the Romans. That's a thought. It's a thought. It's not true. It's a thought I'm having in my brain right now, which makes it true. And if they were there, if there were people from the Orkneys right there, right then, maybe they saw these elephants and brought back wild tales to the people in their communities. Maybe they did, Jen. Okay, this is so many
2: maybes that I just feel like we might as well just like get our rubber stamp out that says false.
0: Mine is the one that's based in fact. Oh, no, 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 no.
2: I have St. Columba on my side.
0: St. Columba is not a credible witness to his own life. I'm sorry. (laughs) Says you. (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry. Are we taking hagiographies as, like, truth now?
2: I mean, you've used them in so, so many other episodes as primary sources.
0: That's true. I have. (laughs) Everything I say on this podcast is completely spurious. That's true. Anyway, so what I'm I'm positing is I'm asking you to imagine for a minute, this small group of elite Orkney warriors, named warriors, picked men, were sent to help out the Orkney's allies in the South. And when they were there, they saw the ancient Roman elephants. They saw them with their own eyeballs. And they brought back wild tales of these amazing animals to the people in their communities up north. And over time... The story of the elephant could have taken on a mythic status and its description could have gotten a little bit muddled because this was a game of telephone. So by the time the Picts started carving their legends on the standing stones, which would have been over three or four hundred years after Claudius's invasion at the earliest, the people carving that image would never have seen an elephant themselves. They would have been operating with a picture in their minds that was hundreds of years after the fact third and fourth and tenth hand, and mythical in nature.
2: Mythical in nature. This sounds like you're making an argument for
0: me. I'm not, Jen, because if you look at the Pictish beast with your eyes, just look at it. Just look at it. Does it not look like an elephant? It looks like an elephant.
2: No, it clearly doesn't. You are full of Pictish nonsense.
0: The narrow trunk snout could be a trunk. The curly tail like an elephant. I'm sorry, that looks like an elephant's tail. Even that thing that goes back across his back looks like it could be an elephant blowing water with his trunk. Backwards. The pigish beast's feet are pointing backwards as it seems to propel itself forward. Looks like it's swimming in the water, possibly the way that an elephant swims in the water. Think about it. An elephant crossing the Thames in the water. That's what they would have seen. Nope. Nope. This is not that weird because anyone seeing Claudius's elephants or even Caesar's elephants would have seen them crossing the River Thames because that's where they were. So... That is my grand theory. And there are other theories that I have seen proposed, and I'm going to talk about them for a minute and explain why I'm not as convinced. So...
2: Yeah, they're all wrong. I I think they're
0: wronger than the elephant, but I think it's an elephant.
2: Are you the only one who
0: thinks it's an elephant,
2: or is there a school of thought who thinks it's the elephant?
0: Other people on Twitter are going to back me, and there's going to be a large school of thought that agrees that it's an elephant after we publish this. Does anyone agree with my theory,
2: or is it just all these other animals that we're not fighting for?
0: St. Columba agrees with your theory, but I don't think that that's, like, a mark in its favor. (laughs) (laughs) I will call down St. Columba! The wrath of St. Columba! He will bust open your door while you're pooping! (laughs) Tell you about God! (laughs) So... Have you heard the
3: good news about the Pictish Beast?
0: <laughs> oh my God, St. Columba, not now. It's a bad time. <laughs> there is no bad time for St. Columba. <laughs> so I have seen proposed that perhaps the Pictish Beast is a dolphin. The bottlenose of its face does look like a dolphin's face a little bit. That's true. It does look more like a dolphin's face than an elephant. It is It is true. That is true. That part of the body. The curly thing that spews out behind it could be a dolphin or whale's blowhole. That's true. However, here's why I think that is complete bullshit. The pigs were sailors. They knew what a dolphin looked like. They knew what a whale looked like. They knew what these animals looked like. They did not think that they had legs or curly tails or have a body that looked like an elephant's body. They did not. If they wanted to draw a bottlenose dolphin or a dolphin or a whale, they would have just drawn one.
2: It kind of reminds me a little bit of what a penguin looks like.
0: It does not at all look like a penguin wrong. It
2: kind of does a little bit. No, it does not. That nose, the tiny little feet at the back going backwards. No, no. Have you never seen how a penguin swims? A penguin underwater looks like a bird flying, except it's underwater. But if you look at a penguin not underwater when it's sitting on the water, it
0: kind of looks a little... No, it does not. Another thing I have seen proposed, which I think is utter bullshit, is that maybe the Pictish Beast may be, in fact, a seahorse. And I also feel that this is utter bullshit. I'm sorry. If the Picts wanted to draw a seahorse, they would have drawn a seahorse. They were seafaring maritime people. They would have known what a seahorse looks like. I'm sorry. Fuck it. It's not a seahorse.
2: No, I I mean, I agree. I don't think it's a seahorse because they, they would have known what a seahorse looks like. But I can see why you would think it was a seahorse. I just don't think that it's correct.
0: So I just, frankly, I don't think that the Pictish Beast is supposed to be a realistic depiction of an animal that the Picts had seen, like a dolphin or a seahorse or a whale. Oh, feels like you're making an argument for me. (laughs) That's because you want to see that and you're wrong. I think that the Picts were representing an animal that they had never seen in real life since, like, generations and generations and generations ago. However, I think that somebody in their background had seen this animal. One ancestor of the Picts, or maybe a few ancestors of the Picts, had seen this animal. And oh, brought, while, oh I'm just please remember get, this. It's kind a listener. real animal, not a mythical animal, but it had taken on mythic status in the Pictish community, and that one or maybe a few of their ancestors had perhaps seen, centuries before, when they'd gone down to fight with their compatriots in southern Britain, an elephant. And then come home with the most wild tales to tell about the most incredible mythical creature, and nobody ever forgot that story. And that is my extremely factual, not at all spurious, <laughs> argument about what the pigdish beast is. I feel that it's an elephant. Julius Caesar! What do you think? Does this sound like your your single mom elephant? Why, yes, of course. It's my dolph elephant Lucy. Dolph
2: elephant? <laughs> It would not surprise me if the pigs fell in love with my Dolph Elephant Lucy. I did love her so dearly. She had a very funny look to her. Like, sometimes when she was swimming, I sort of fancied she was a bit like a dolphin. Was she half dolphin, half elephant? When a dolphin meets an elephant that it cares very much for <laughs> and falls very deeply in love. When a dolphin and an elephant fall in love. I assume that... A woman of your age has been explained about the, uh, birds and the bees?
1: What? A woman of
2: my age? I, th- I think we need to back up here. You're far past marriageable age. You're oh.
0: over the age of
1: 12. <laughs> marriageable age.
0: Everything about this conversation is so disturbing. So you're saying that your one single lone single mom wore elephant was in fact a Dolph elephant? Why is that so surprising?
2: dolphins and elephants can love each other very much julius caesar are you pulling my chain why miss williamson even on the first of april julius caesar does not come back from the grave to pull one's chain let alone besmirch the good name of lucy (laughs) lucy the dolphin yes lucy the (laughs) dolphin i don't know why you find this so funny
0: (laughs) there you have it folks it was a dolphin straight from julius caesar's Extremely lying mouth. April Fools! (laughs) Right.
2: I'm going to wrestle this conversation back from the realms of the sublimely ridiculous to just the ridiculous.
0: (laughs) To the completely outlandishly ridiculous. That's where we're going to take this.
2: Here's the thing. We've heard from Julius Caesar about Lucy, and we've heard from Jenny. Now I get to state my case. St. Columba's getting involved. I think that that tells us all we need to know. I'm so excited. I've had a little bit of Prosecco. It's late at night. So I think the Pictish Beast wasn't something real. I think it stemmed from something deep-seated in the mythology of the Picts. And to prove this, I've looked into the mythology of the United Kingdom and Ireland. I'm Scotland. Well, Scotland's part of the United Kingdom. And I came up with a few suggestions for what the Pictish Beast might have been. I am firmly wearing my tinfoil hat, and I'm aware I'm about to go out on so many limbs, I might as well be a hydra.
0: I'm just gonna pour myself a little more right here.
2: And if for some bizarre reason you use this podcast as a resource in your own research, I mean, Why? Why? This might be a time for you to look at your life and your choices, because we're going to enter the world of cryptozoology and mythology. So my theory is that the Pictish beast is actually a depiction of a water horse. So a water horse is a kind of mythological creature that is half horse and half fish. And these creatures can be found in the folklore of Scotland, Ireland, England, Germany, Scandinavia, Iceland, and across the ancient Mediterranean. Is this a coincidence? I think not. I think it is. I think it
0: really is. No, I think not. If you just look at it with your eyeballs, it does not look like a horse or a fish. Just let me keep talking. I didn't interrupt you
2: this much in the first paragraph. I beg to differ. <laughs> so different types of water horses can be found in most ancient cultures. Celtic mythology is full of water horses. There are water horses and whales, On the Isle of Man, and in Scotland, a water horse is called a Kelpie. These mythological animals were believed to live in rivers and lakes and to drown unsuspecting travelers. Ooh. I believe I have your attention now.
0: You had me at drowning unsuspected travelers.
2: (laughs) 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 So it's impossible to say how old stories of water horses are in the British Isles, like they originate there, or if they might have come to the British Isles by way of somewhere else, different stories. And I'm, I can't say either way. I mean, I want to believe that they originated there. But there is a lot of cultural exchange, especially amongst Celtic cultures. So the oldest depiction of a water horse is the hippocampus, which dates back to the 6th century BC and was found in a horde in Lydia in Asia Minor. The hippocampus is the Roman and Greek version of a water horse. It was associated with Neptune or Poseidon, the god of the sea, and was sometimes used as a mode of transport for the god. There aren't a lot of stories about the hippocampus in Greek and Roman mythology, but the image of this creature was minted on coins in the 4th century BC, and the strange-looking beast made its way across the Greco-Roman world and beyond, carried on their money, and probably in their lost folklore.
0: And to be clear, a hippocampus, like a Greco-Roman hippocampus, was like half fish, half horse. Very straightforward. Yes. Half fish, half horse. With its mane flowing in the
2: back, and its curly fish tail, and its little front feet that went backwards. Just so everyone understands where where I'm getting this from.
0: It only had two legs, though, and those were horse legs, and they were the front legs.
2: Yeah, again, we've made a case that potentially this is something that changed in the telephone game of getting this, like, drawn.
0: Yes, we've made that case. That was the case you made, so I am i don't have to retread that argument. That argument exists already. The pigs had seen a fish, and they had seen a horse, so if they wanted to make a fish horse, they could have done that.
2: They could have, but they didn't. So, a hippocampus was a traditional decoration in Roman baths, and you can see one in the Roman baths at Bath. And this detail is super important We know that when the Romans came to the British Isles, they brought images of a beast that looked surprisingly like the Pictish Beast with them. It didn't look like the Pictish Beast. It did. Could the Pictish Beast depict a uniquely Scottish version of an early water horse that was based on a Roman hippocampus? It's extremely unlikely. It's more likely than an elephant.
0: Julius Caesar says it's a Dolph elephant. I agree with him. It's also
2: April Fool's, and he called it Lucy. He's pulling your chain. I think the Pictish beast was in Scotland long before the Romans got there. It could have been brought by Phoenician traders as early as the 400s BC. There is scant early evidence of Phoenicians making it to the British Isles, but it's mentioned briefly in the ancient sources. And they did have their own version of a water horse. But this creature could have also been native to the folklore and tradition of the Scots. And there's a reason to think they invented it themselves. Scotland is full of deep, mysterious locks, rivers with treacherous mudflats that could suck you down, and sea channels with strong, dangerous currents. And the Kelpie, which is the Scottish version of the water horse, was strongly associated with dangerous waters. I think the Pictish Beast was a warning, a sort of traveler beware, because on this road, we've spotted a dangerous Kelpie.
0: Are we back to drowning strangers? Because I'm into that. We're totally back to drowning strangers.
2: So... What was a Kelpie? Kelpies are mythological creatures that love to hang out near water. They're particularly strongly associated with locks, and they show up in rivers and sometimes the ocean. But they weren't tied to water. In human form, they could travel much further afield. So they could change into humans. They could change into humans. That's part of how they tricked you. So in Scottish mythology, Kelpies can take lots of forms. But one popular form is a beautiful black horse with a dripping wet mane. The kind of horse that you can't help but want to pet and make friends with. But be careful, Jenny, because this horse has ulterior motives. This horse will get you to ride on its back and then gallop into the deep and swiftly moving water, drown you, and leave your entrails on the banks of the river as a warning to
0: all. See, this is the exact kind of toxic relationship that I am extremely likely to fall for. This is why I warn you, like, here's the thing. I'm very happily married to an accountant because
2: I read my fairy tales.
1: <laughs> right, I'm just like, you know, I'm
0: the reason I'm single is because I'm into bad boys and extremely beautiful, glossy mean black horses who are going to drown me and leave my trails on the side of the river. So Jenny, if you're in Scotland
2: one day and you see a beautiful black horse with a dripping wet mane, Oh, I'm petting that horse. I know it's gonna be a it's gonna be a kelpie dateline. You need it's to pay, gonna... <laughs> you need to pay very careful attention, Jenny. Okay, so the hooves of a kelpie are reversed, so that they almost look like they're swimming on land. They're backwards, almost exactly like the hooves of the Pictish beast. Coincidence, Jenny?
0: I think not. Oh, see, that's a touche. See, that is the most convincing detail I've gotten from you so far. Because the Pictish beast's little feetlets are pointed backwards like it is swimming.
2: It's a goddamn Kelpie. It's the warning. It's saying if you see this animal on land and its hooves are reversed like this, that is danger. Danger. That animal wants to get you to ride on its strong back and then it's going to drive you into the sea or the lock or the river and drown you.
0: You know I can't resist that, Jan. I'm going to have to be held back.
2: You're going to be like Odysseus and the sirens. It's going to be awesome. I'm going to be (laughs) like,
0: I must pet this beautiful animal and feed it carrots. And you're going to be like, no, Jenny, look at its hooves. No. Look at its hooves. You can tell. So the Pictures bees
2: could resemble a Kelpie in other ways, too. Its body is horse-like, not fish-like. It's not half horse, half fish. This means if it is a water horse, it's closer to the native Kelpie than to the hippocampus from ancient Rome. And the ornate line streaming back over its neck from its head could represent a streaming mane. So Kelpies can also take other shapes. They could appear as a horse with snakes in their mane, as white horses who sang songs that lured people towards the water and their deaths, as handsome young men who could cast spells on young women and lure them off the path and take them For a final ride in the dark waters, or as older men with seaweed in their hair. So when a Kelpie takes a human form, it is almost always as a solitary man.
0: With ripped abs or no? That's an important detail.
2: I mean, I'm going ripped abs. I'm going the kind of solitary man where you're just like, I know you're danger, but I'm going to go over and pet your mane? Pet your very glossy, dripping wet mane? I mean, that's probably an overstep.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a little bit of a St. Columba. This, This is why the Kelpie drowns people. So according
2: to the folklore, you can tell that this solitary man is not quite a man because he keeps his hooved feet. And they're probably pointing backwards. This may or may not be part of the original myth. Because most of the stories of the Kelpie come down to us from Christian scribes who started to record these legends in the 6th century AD. And a creature with hoot feet immediately became associated with Satan. The Kelpie, mythological Scottish creatures, existed in folklore long before their stories were written down by Christian scribes. Originally, they existed as a menacing warning creature who wasn't entirely evil. But once the Christians began telling this story, well, the Kelpie became associated with the devil. Because that's what the Christians did to pagan folklore. But the folklore around the Kelpie, when you remove the obvious demonization, makes a lot of sense. Kelpies lured women and children to their deaths. They seduced young women into going out at night, off paths, and into the deep waters. (laughs) It's very clear that someone did not approve of skinny dipping.
0: I always go skinny dipping with large black horses. I
2: mean, if a black horse is like, do you want to go skinny dipping? I mean, I'm obviously terrified. Look, my answer is going to be yes, every single time. Every single time. So the mythology around the Kelpie is one of caution. The lakes and rivers are dark and deep, and they hold many secrets that can kill you. The mudflats are rife with quicksand. And I read somewhere, I think it was like in the Kelpie myth of the Orkney Islands, that the Orkney original word for Kelpie, which I haven't written down, meant quicksand. Like as if it was like the creature name came from the quicksand. So I thought that was fascinating. Interesting. So I believe very firmly that the Pictish Beast was a warning to travelers. Beware, there are water monsters. There are things that will lure you off the path. And the Pictish beast was a form of the monster itself.
0: I mean, I do have some quibbles with this. Number one, I cannot corroborate that every single Pictish beast image appeared near or around water or quicksand.
2: Yeah, but you didn't have to. I think it was a Kelpie has been spotted in these areas, right? Why would the
0: Kelpie be spotted if there wasn't water within striking distance? Like, why would they need that warning?
2: Well, they might need that warning because like the sand is sucky and marshlandy and it could just pull you down.
0: I don't think there's been any studies to, like, map out locations of different Pictish stones with Pictish beasts on them that are within a radius of quicksand or water.
2: Look, this is April Fool's. Nobody has done the research on this because nobody believes this.
0: And also a lot of them have been found not in situ because people moved them around. Exactly. So it could have been.
2: You're wrong. I debunked
1: you.
0: Number two, if you look at, okay, if you look at the Pictish beast with your eyeballs and just look at it, it does not look like a horse at all. They knew what horses look like. We have been told
2: that a Kelpie looks a certain way by the Christian scribes, but what if, what if they got it wrong? And it actually looks exactly like the Pictish Beast, but we don't know because of the game of telephone.
0: Okay, so you're saying that the um, the original water horse was not in fact supposed to look like a horse. What was it supposed to look like?
2: I have another, maybe even crazier thought. What if the Pictish Beast was a water monster? Because we cannot have this episode without talking about the most famous sea or lake monster that might be the Pictish beast of them all, the Loch Ness Monster. Oh, that's where we're taking this. I'm going to introduce you to my friend Nessie.
0: This is very tinfoil hat right now. (laughs) This is very tinfoil hat. Look, I had to drink
2: all the Prosecco before we got here because even as I was writing this, I was like, oh boy. I realize how ridiculous it is, but I also think it could be true. Because my man, my man St. Columba, he says it might be true.
0: <laughs> Everything St. Columba says, Jen listens to. I really do. I grew up Catholic. What do you want me to tell you? This is very disturbing to me. I find St. Columba to be a little horrific, so I'm just like, "Oh god."
2: I mean, we all do, but in this one instance, what if what if he saw Nessie?
0: He's her problematic fave. She's like, <laughs> "Yeah, I know he's so problematic, but he just pushes on my Catholic buttons." Shut
2: up. <laughs> my grandmother is looking down for me from her eternal resting place and rolling her eyes, both of them.
0: break my door down, St. Columba. Could you stop, please? This is
2: so upsetting for me. <laughs> And I've offended
0: all of our Catholic listeners (laughs) in one fell swoop. I'm a lapsed Catholic. I've even offended those. Yeah, me. (laughs) This is extremely
2: disturbing. Okay. So the very first mention of Nessie dates all the way back to the earlier days of the Picts, around 565 AD. St. Columba, the problematic scribe, (laughs) encountered Nessie when he was on his way to visit a Pictish king.
0: That would have been Brood
2: First. Here's how the event went down according to the life of St. Columba. This is the very first mention of Nessie that we have in written history. We obviously know he's on the Pictish stones, or she. I like to think Nessie's a she. But you have to take this with a grain of salt, because St. Columba. So, quote, The following account is attributed to the year 565 A.D., Concerning a certain water beast, driven away by the power of the blessed man's prayer. When the blessed man was for a lumber of days in the province of the Picts, he had to cross the river Ness. When he reached its bank, he saw a poor fellow being buried by other inhabitants, and the barrier said that, while swimming not long before, he had been seized and most savagely bitten by a water beast. Some men, going to his rescue in a wooden boat, though too late, had put out hooks and caught hold of his wretched corpse. When the blessed man heard this, he ordered, notwithstanding, that one of his companions should swim out and bring back to him, by sailing, a boat that stood on the opposite bank.
0: It just tickles me that they can't refer to St. Columba without calling him the blessed man. Well, I mean, look, he's gotten honorific. He really, he feels like you gotta call him by it. Jen's like, no, I just have a giant boner for St. Columba, and I can't explain it.
3: No.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I don't want to examine it. I just want to revel in it. Can I get back to my quote now? She just loves him. She loves St. Columba. Quote!
2: <laughs> Hearing this order of the holy and memorable man, another man obeyed without delay, and putting off his clothes, accepting his tunic, because modesty, plunged into the water. But his pants are off, though, so, like, what? Why? I mean, I can. I wouldn't be able to talk to him because he's not wearing underwear, but let's move on. Balls are fully out, but modesty. Can I please get back to my quote? (laughs) Quote. But the monster, whose appetite had earlier been not so much sated as wetted for prey, lurked in the depth of the river, feeling the water above disturbed by the man swimming. It suddenly swam up to the surface. And with gaping mouth, and with great roaring, rushed towards the man swimming in the middle of the stream. While all that were there, barbarians and even brothers, were struck down with extreme terror. The blessed man who was watching raised his holy hand and drew the saving sign of the cross in the empty air, and then, invoking the name of God, he commanded the savage beast and said, "'You will go no further. You shall not pass.' Do not touch the man. Turn back speedily. Then, hearing this command of the saint, the beast, as if pulled back with ropes, fled, terrified, in swift retreat. And yes, he's Gandalf here. And who doesn't love Gandalf? I'm sorry.
0: Catholic Gandalf.
2: There's only one Gandalf, and it wasn't Saint Columba. But... If you're picturing St. Columba right now as Ian McKellen as Gandalf, then you're in my brain. (laughs) Just remember, if you're
0: pooping, he's going to bust in there to tell you about Jesus and himself.
2: Mostly about himself, though. So finally, even though we've reached the realm of cryptozoology here, there is reason to think that stories of water horses could have had their roots in the remains of a real animal who once swam in these waters— The Mosasaurs.
0: We're sullying the memory of the Mosasaurs by bringing them into this extremely spurious conversation. Really?
2: We're not sullying anything. The Mosasaurs belong here. The Mosasaurs own this land.
0: You know, I feel like the Mosasaur contingent of our listeners is now extremely offended.
2: Look, this is not the first time I brought the Mosasaurs in. I brought them in during the Germanicus series because Tiberius owned a Mosasaur tooth.
0: It's not the first time we've been cancelled by the Mosasaur contingent of our listeners. (laughs) we're sorry we love you mosasaurs so archaeology tells
2: us that there were ancient mosasaurs or giant aquatic reptiles whose fossils have been found across europe these ancient animals lived about 75 million years ago and they could reach up to 50 feet long and they look a little bit like they could be like a loch ness monster skeleton with massive alligator heads and enormous teeth and kind of like the Pictish Beast.
0: I have questions about this, though. Like, if you look at a Mosasaur fossil, does it look like the Pictish Beast?
2: I mean, it could, depending on who puts it together.
0: I don't think it does look like the Pictish Beast at all, except maybe its head... But it would have had a lot more teeth if that was what they were going for.
2: You're assuming a complete picture, which we don't know that they would have had. So it's quite likely that ancient cultures came across these fossils, especially while mining. Some Celtic cultures, especially ancient Hallstatt and Laten cultures, were heavily focused on mining. And we also know that these, like mosasaur artifacts were like traded throughout the ancient world because we know the emperor tiberius had one it was like supposed to be the tooth of a sea serpent which later on we realize is the tooth of a mosasaur that was probably dug up somewhere
0: i've been to maastricht in the netherlands where there are mines, like I think granite or marble mines, like massive mines that it's like you walk through the tunnels of these mines and each tunnel is is like you could fit like 16 cathedrals in there. And that's where they got all the marble for all the cathedrals throughout Europe in the Middle Ages from like the 1300s onward or something. I'm probably screwing up those dates. But there have been Mosasaur skeletons found in those mines. So if we're talking Celtic miners all the way back earlier than that even... I wouldn't be surprised if they occasionally came across skeletons. And I'm not saying that there were mosasaur skeletons found in Scotland, because I'm not aware of any. I could be wrong on that. But there were definitely mosasaur skeletons found, like, that existed in the ancient world. And maybe some people found them in their mining. And maybe the news traveled. In which case, it could have been a game of telephone when it got to the pics, too. That's what
2: I'm saying. What would ancient people have made of these giant skeletons? Could they have believed that they might still live in the depths of oceans and lakes, particularly dangerous oceans and lakes? Could they have spun stories that explained the mysterious deaths of people in their own communities, people who went swimming where they shouldn't or who walked too near to the mudflats late at night? using these mysterious sea monsters could these skeletons be the origins of the mythology of the water horse of the kelpie so maybe the picture piece represents an early image of a water horse the precursor to a kelpie or maybe the loch ness monster herself maybe the story of the kelpie comes from colonizing romans maybe it was invented by the scots to explain mysterious aquatic deaths and warn people away from dangerous currents and maybe Just maybe stories of the water horse find their truth in a much older animal from a far more ancient ocean indeed. I'm sorry, Jenny, but this is definitive proof that the Pictish Beast was a Kelpie and the Loch Ness Monster and also probably a Mosasaur, the most terrifying water beast of them all.
0: I mean, that is a bold claim. There are some things about your argument that are not as completely out there as I thought. However, I am going to go with the elephant on this, and I would like to hear Julius Caesar's opinion.
2: Oh, Miss Williamson, everyone knows. With the Dolph Elephant Lucy, anything else is just ridiculous bunk from a crazy ginger. Fuck you, Julius Caesar! Okay, so we know what Julius Caesar thinks. He thinks I'm right. Jenny is not right. Julius Caesar and Jenny are once again shamelessly flirting. And also, Julius Caesar is completely, completely teasing her because it's April Fool's. Everyone knows my argument is the most sound and makes the most sense.
0: So, we leave it to you, the listener. Which argument do you find less spurious? Which argument do you find more ridiculous? Do I win? Does Jen win? Do you think we're both full of actual shit? What is your problematic fave? My problematic fave is definitely the horse that's going to drown me. Jen's problematic fave is Catholic Gandalf. Okay, so that's it now. We're done.
2: <laughs> so that's it for this week. We'll see you in two weeks. And in the meantime, join us on social at Ancient AncientHistFan on Twitter or at Ancient AncientHistoryFangirl on Instagram or Facebook.
0: And check out our Patreon. Starting at just $2 a month, you could actually pay us money to get even more nonsense. So for just $2 a month, you'll help
2: us keep the lights on. You'll help keep supporting our ability to bring you great content or spurious content. I mean, you know, one or the other. But you'll also get extra brand new episodes only for Patreon subscribers and conversations where we get extremely drunk and silly with other smart podcasters and talk about things like Greek mythology and movies. And we have Kukalan and Julia Caesar on. And it's just a wild time that I am not sure I could ever express in words.
0: If you want to hear more Julius Caesar and Cucullin, like, they show up in our $10 and up episodes a lot. Like, we just have a lot of kind of very freewheeling, casual episodes that feature them. It's really fun. We have some patrons to thank. Yeah. Blanket statement. We're probably going to mispronounce some names. We're sorry. Abigail Van Kirk. Buttoneer. Jake Swinson. Isha K. Wheeland, Trisha Kramer. Caitlin Willie, Katie Beaumont. Brian Egan. Kira Freeman. Charlotte McHale. Britt Hobson. Rita Brown. Ted Humphrey. Ashley. Just Ashley. To say. Claire
2: Bear. Vicky Brim. Only Me Three. Lucy Hansen. Jessica Gray. Katrina Farley. Jeanette. Anastasia Shabina. Katherine Ward. Catherine Waterfield.
0: And there's one person who left their name blank. And we thank you, blank person. We thank you.
2: We thank you. You know who you are. We appreciate your support. We appreciate all of your support. We're really, really appreciative of all of our new patrons. Times are tough, and we know that it's really difficult right now for everyone, including us. And if you're able to give and support us, please do. It really means the world to us. We've both had major life-changing circumstances, and we want to keep the podcast going and keep it the forefront most important thing for us. And without your support, we can't do that.
0: Yeah, I mean, we've really worked hard... We've really worked hard to um keep the podcast going on a regular schedule and keep the quality up. We really feel like it's important to us to be there for our listeners in difficult times, just to keep you guys company, to keep your mind off of harder things. That's what we want to do, that's what we're here for. If you can support us, we really really appreciate it. If you can't support us, you know, we get it. We've definitely had some financial hard times as well we totally understand just tell somebody you know about us and give us a recommend or maybe retweet something that we put out there or you know help spread the word we appreciate that too thank you so much and we will see you in
2: two weeks